You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. artist but it hasn't been working out too well and here is your gun what i've never used a gun before in my life there's a hunger in man's soul that cannot be satisfied by food listen kiddo don't you think it's time you buckled down and did something with your life i can get you into the columbia art school no thanks i have to do it my way we never cleaned it out and no can well Yes, I'll take it. How much? So, I've been working a long time to achieve a status as an artist. In Paris, they treated me better. We're going to the Futaba. There's a very, very good conceptual installation. Life Walk 5000. It's a German conceptual artist, Klaus Wiener. He's on a treadmill counting to a million. 1019, we shall show you that New York City is a dream created by higher beings as a temporary lodging place in the earthly sojourn. Wow. But how do I know that this isn't a dream right now? Faith. spiritual networks in most of the great cities of the world, but there is one place we haven't been able to do our work. singing on a bus to the moon. Must have been all them women, Mr. Fisher. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Even cold November rain? Also with us this week is our old friend, Skiz Sizzik. How the hell did I end up singing on a bus to the moon? 
This week, Modi May continues with Tom Schiller's Nothing Lasts Forever. The third Saturday Night Live film, Nothing Lasts Forever, tells the story of Adam Beckett, a disillusioned young man who wants to be an artist. What kind of artist? That's not really important. He receives some sage advice in Europe and returns to America only to find that New York is under the control of the Port Authority. He tries to find his niche amongst the artists of New York before finding refuge amongst the homeless network of the city. He heads to the moon where he meets and falls in love with Eloy before being punched back to Earth for the moment of his greatest artistic triumph. The film stars Zach Galligan as Adam Beckett and Lauren Tom as Eloy. It also stars Bill Murray as Adam's lunar nemesis and Dan Aykroyd as his earthly boss. After a brief run in Seattle, the film languished in obscurity for decades. Skiz, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Nothing Lasts Forever and what did you think? I think the first time, I'm trying to remember when that was, that it uh, suddenly was announced that it was up on YouTube. I think that was 2011. Was it that long ago? Wow. Well, yeah. I, I just know that when uh, there was buzz around the internet that this like long lost Bill Murray movie had uh, shown up on on uh, YouTube, and that was the first time I watched it. It has a lot of things that I like about it, and it really does seem like it should be right up my alley. It's kind of in that Guy Madden movie that looks like an old movie kind of feel. I don't love this movie, uh, but I do like it. There, there's, a, there's a charm to it. Unfortunately, I'd really like to see a better quality copy of it because uh, I have a hard time understanding a lot of the dialogue in, in the versions that I've watched. How about you, Rob? Well, I heard about it too, like you said, back when there was the articles that came out. And I don't think I saw it then. And I just remember seeing that photo of Bill Murray dressed up like, uh, I guess, maybe the captain or whatever of the uh, plane which we then find out is actually a bus to the moon, which I found kind of funny. But um, I just remember that photo of him that was going around the internet. And then I think you sent it to me to watch because you got a copy of it somewhere. And it looks like it was a UK VHS dub off TV or something. I agree with you. It would be nice to see a, a beautiful print of this because it is in black and white. And then there are those color sequences I think if it just looked nicer, it would be a, a, a real treat because I'm sure that it was shot beautifully because it looks like it, even though it doesn't, you know, you know what I mean? When you see a beat up copy, yeah. you're like, oh, it could always be so much better than this. I, I can actually see uh, Tom Schiller's style, just knowing his, uh, his Saturday Night Live work, uh, which is, which was always really well shot as well. You can, you can see that he must've used a lot of the same people when he made this, this feature. So seeing the Saturday night live films in such good quality and then seeing this, I know what this has the capabilities of being. I, and I'm really hoping someday I get to see it in full quality. And that's the thing when you look at the credits on this is how much of a Saturday night live film it really is in terms of him, who, as you said, was doing films on there, was a writer. You have Bill Murray, you have Dan Aykroyd, uh, Howard Shore, who was the musical director, um, doing the score. So, and then Lauren Michaels putting the money on it. Which, after I watched it, I remember telling you, Mike. I think it was on Facebook. I go, man, this has got to be the weirdest film that Lauren Michaels ever put any money into. I mean, and he's made a lot of direct since, but I still get the feeling that there's a, um, a a feeling and willingness to experiment, at least at this stage in 1983, 84, when they made this thing. I don't know. When it comes to weirdest, I think. It's Pat might have it beat. Which I haven't Thank seen. You. Thank you. Thank you. Here all week. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Which I haven't seen. So there you go. 
I almost went ladies' man with that one, but I stuck with It's Pat. And I actually like Stuart Saves His Family, so uh, I, I, I'm leaving that one out of it. I liked It's Pat. Really? I haven't <laughs> yeah. seen that one, actually. I, oh. I take it back. You know, Quentin Tarantino had a pass at that script at one point, so it must have really crackling dialogue. Well, I mean, if you like the, the Pat skits, uh, it's pretty much just that stretched out. And, and Ween makes a cameo, so that's kind of cool. I've always been waiting for the Copy Guy movie. I thought that that would be probably one of the best Saturday Night Live movies that there could be. I mean, if Night at the Roxbury was a -a laugh-a-minute farce, I can't imagine what the Copy Guy would be like. Well, the other one that they should have done, and I think you might appreciate this since you work in some sort of digital field, is uh, Nick Burns, the computer guy who comes and, you know, move and tells you, yells at you and you got a computer problem. That was almost like the uh, the copy guy, but instead of making copies, it was move. We have one guy on Twitter that is on us probably once every two weeks to cover the MacGruber film one of these days. Ooh. So I finally saw that and was kind of disappointed. I haven't seen it. I haven't even seen any of the skits, so I would be coming in very cold for this one. I liked the skits. I didn't like the movie. But moving from you know all the um, lovely... Uh, Lauren Michaels uh, produced films to one that's been languishing for 30 years. Uh, I guess we should get into the plot on this one, Mike. So, yeah, it uh, begins with young Adam Beckett in Carnegie Hall and playing the piano. And he does a great job playing one number. Then he goes off screen and he seems to be a little bit of a diva about this. And then uh, it comes back out and... I love that they kind of have this whole thing where it's like, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll be ready for you, wait for the signal. And I'm like, what the hell is going on with this? But I can't go back on. You hear that, boss? You can't. It's a lie. I'm not going to hate myself. 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 i And then finally he starts to play and this guy pulls this lever and I'm like, okay, I really don't understand what's going on there. And then it's quickly revealed that it's a player piano. As a hillbilly in the audience announces. And I was so, for some reason, just once that, bit happened when the hillbilly stands up and screams it's a player piano um rainer sheen who uh almost always plays a hillbilly in movies i was hooked i was like okay yeah i'm in for the ride whatever this movie has to to take me i'll I'll be there so he's basically a classical piano uh, millie vanilli exactly now my question is is that entire opening scene a dream that's what so much of this movie kind of posits is what's a dream and what's not. And I noticed the last time that I watched it, how many times Adam Beckett talks about, is this a dream? What if this is a dream? What, what happens when I wake up? And there's the moment when towards the end of the film, Bill Murray punches him out and it seems like he is out cold and then he kind of falls back to earth. And it's like, so what's a dream and what's not is the color stuff, a dream is the black and white stuff. I mean, the, the whole thing has this 
almost dream within a dream quality to it just because it is so outlandish with the way that it is all set up. I mean, mm-hmm. we've got him on the train waking up to, you know, what had happened with this, uh, you know, horrible performance at Carnegie Hall where everybody found out that he was a fraud. Is he really waking up or is he not? I mean, it's just absolutely, um, kind of blows your mind with the the different levels of reality in here. And maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but to me, it seems like there's a lot more going on in the film than just what's there on the surface, especially because when you think about it, Adam Beckett is like one of the most non-dynamic characters that I've seen in a long time. He just kind of lets stuff happen to him. I mean, he has these kind of like guides that take him through things. I mean, sometimes quite literal. I mean, very quickly, he goes from um, the Carnegie Hall scene into this train, and there's this guy there who tells him about his childhood and encourages Adam to be this artist and tells him, you know, you'll get everything that you want, just not in the way that you expect it. And Adam goes out and starts, you know, throwing papers out the window and declaring that he will become an artist and yet never knowing what type of art it is. And then we kind of cut to some newsreel footage where we see what state the United States is in, that California is crumbling because of earthquakes, and that New York City is under the strict control of the Port Authority. And I love that it's Paul Fries doing the voiceover on this uh, newsreel footage, which was terrific. And um, we've talked a little bit about Paul Fries before on our World's Greatest Sinner episode. I believe he, <laughs> he did the voice of Satan in that one. Meanwhile, Manhattan is suffering under its 100-day-long crippling general strike, which has affected transportation, shelter, housing, utilities, and gasoline. The city is now under control of the Port Authority. This is the Port Authority. We are in control of the city. Your cooperation is appreciated. New entry and residence requirements are in full legal effect for all Gotham-bound visitors. Temporary checkpoints have been set up to accommodate the tremendous influx of unauthorized guests. Well, playtime for fabled Gotham is coming to an end. Once he gets into New York, it's very quickly that he finds that he can't just be an artist he has to take a test in order to prove that he is an artist and one of the artists that's there who kind of also flunks out is this woman who ends up getting a job at the same place that he does he's working near the holland tunnel and she kind of becomes his like spirit guide a little bit taking him through all of these different forms of art that are in new york and i kind of put art in quotation marks in this this instance because they're just so out there and new wave and like the scene with the band where they're all wearing these medical masks and they're just like making noise and i'm like okay this is beyond uh you know the velvet underground this is just you know strictly noise music but yeah so he kind of always has this person who's leading him through he never does he he doesn't initiate very often i mean right. i think that's a good way to sort of build an audience character because if it is going to be this odd world he's kind of a stand-in for us in, in in particular times because we don't necessarily know what we're up against um because you get the feeling in the beginning that it is some sort of anachronistic 1930s early 40s movie and then as you were saying by you know 20 minutes in or something there's all of this obvious 80s reference that's 
piled in on top of it. So it's it's interesting how it's kind of everywhere and nowhere and it borrows from all these different places. And I think that maybe part of the reason for the black and white and color, and we can talk more about, you know, why the color is used where it's used, is that it may have been a good device to keep the budget down because you could use all that stock footage and it would have matched better than trying to um, find color stock footage of that era. I also I see that kind of as the uh, the the Wizard of Oz syndrome, where you know the first time it goes to color, he's in the elevator going to the underworld of the homeless, and I think the next time it's in color, it's, it's on the moon. So he's in these sort of magical places both times, and then the rest of it is just kind of his dreary reality. And it's such beautiful color. I mean, I love it's kind of very washed out um just the way that it is it feels very very warm um and and it's subtle the way that it kind of comes into the picture i mean the first time that it does go from black and white to color it kind of fades in so it's not necessarily the opening of the door of you know the uh of dorothy's house but it's it's nice that you know it kind of seeps into the screen and then once you realize that it's there it's like oh wow you know and it just really does kind of you know take you into this whole other world it never really does say what year it takes place either it it's it it kind of it sort of does what brazil does which is it's several different decades all mashed in the one, so it's the past and the future all at the same time. Yeah, I love that To Lose the Trek is hanging out at this um, art place. You know, Eric Cavari is in the background, and it, at first I was like, is that To Lose the Trek? Because he is not at the same height as everybody else in the room. And then in the end credits, it has him credit as to lose the track. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's just another weird touch, man. Like why would this, you know, impressionist artist be hanging out with <laughs> in at the board authority. And yeah, it, it definitely mixes and matches all of these things. And it just kind of picks what it wants to have. I mean, the, Definitely that 80s hipster scene is there, but it feels also like there's some 60s and 70s art kind of stuff. I mean, the whole thing, one of the exhibits that uh, the woman takes him to is this guy who's on a treadmill counting to, what was it, to a million in German. 1001, 1002, that to me, I was like, boy, that feels very Warhol-esque. And, and Life Watch Five Thousand. He's still he's still counting at the very end too, isn't he? Yeah, he's still counting when uh, when um, uh, Adam goes home and finds that Mara has uh, started sleeping sleeping with this guy. He's counting while he's in the shower. <laughs> no, but I, I thought at the very end, he looks out and sees her in the audience with him and, and he's still mouthing. He's still counting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that because it is his moment of his greatest triumph at the end of the film because everybody that has been there has shown up again, which is always a, a great moment. Again, kind of like wizard of Oz. Yeah. And you were there <laughs> and you, and you were counting. Now, but now the reason I think that that opening scene is a dream is because he's playing to a, a packed house that, for some reason, forgets that he's already fooled them once. So, right. did, did he really fool them, or was that just a dream? Yeah, I'm thinking that it was 
his anxiety about stuff, but I really won't swear to what's real and what's a dream in this film because it really feels well, obviously taking a bus to the moon feels a little like it should be a dream. And there's just so many like strange coincidences going on. Like at one point he's living with his aunt and uncle and he decides to move out. He goes to all these kind of like transient hotels and ends up at this place where the only room that's available is furnished and an artist used to live there and he goes up and there's a picture on the wall of Eloy. And then later on he meets her in person. And it's like, Oh, you're the girl from the picture. And she has a picture of him as well, which was kind of this, like, you know, they're fated to be together, but we don't necessarily get the explanation as to how the picture got there. It was just kind of like this larger machination to get those two together. Yeah, I almost feel like I need to go back and rewatch it now and pay close attention to when he could be falling asleep versus waking up and see if it's more obvious and I just didn't notice it. Well, the other reference to a film of sort of dream logic within the film is they show um, clips of other movies, uh, silent film, and one is Potemkin, but Potemkin I wouldn't consider dream logic. It's more formalist, but uh, Ushen Andalou. Of course, my my good man Bunuel in the uh, coffee shop when they're in the in the cafe there is on one of the TVs because there's the whole um, you know the eyeball thing. So if he's referencing the dream logic and weirdness of that, then maybe he's saying, "Hey, this is weird dream logic too." So don't try to read too much into to this either. I love how huge Mara's coffee cup is in that first uh, coffee shop scene where it just looks like. I don't know, five, ten times bigger than the one that he has. <laughs> yeah, the triple espresso, which more looks yes. more like a quadruple or quintet espresso, yeah. I'd like that Mara Hoffmeyer was played by a woman whose name sounds like it's a movie character, Apollonia von Ravenstein. It seems to me that those two could be flipped, like it's Apollonia von Ravenstein played by Mara Hoffmeyer. Yeah, but uh I mean, great names all the way around, especially for me, Father Knickerbocker, the guy who is the head of the homeless network, uh, the homeless underground, like literal underground, uh, played by Sam Jaffe. And it was so great to see him. There's so many good faces in this film. And I know that that's one of the things that Schiller really liked to do was to kind of cast faces, kind of doing that Fellini thing that we talked about back in the Satyricon and and, um, Juliet of the Spirits episodes, where he would see these interesting faces and just kind of bring them in. And I like that they even made make a direct Fellini reference in the film. Well, I also saw the father Knickerbocker character as sort of the, not only um, the leader of the homeless group, as you were talking about there, but also sort of this um, God of the universe that's been created there. Cause they were talking about how on the ticker tape, there's all these names of people and he happens to know like the fates of everyone. Isn't the gentleman over there? He is Father Knickerbocker, our Grand Master. He is making important life destiny decisions for all who dwell in New York City. Just a second, just a second. Don't be impatient. Everything will be taken care of. Each of these ticker tapes represents a human soul. Each secret master guides and protects a human spirit. And he tells him, look at the people. And he shows him the photos. And there's like Caruso and 
and they talk about Walt Whitman was here last week and he was great and you know someday your picture will be up there so he seems to be like this god character that that sort of plans out everybody's lives and I love that when they show him what humanity is like they're showing clips from intolerance I'm like okay that's nice too <laughs> I loved how the uh the the Potemkin scene they're watching it on a TV screen that's smaller than than an iPhone. Oh God, <laughs> it's yeah, tiny. it's it's smaller than an iWatch these days. Yeah, and of course she's like, oh, you have to study this, and she's just so, you know, all about his education and everything. And after a while, I can totally understand where he's like, yeah, I really don't need any part of this, and he goes back to work at the. Uh, Holland Tunnel entrance with Dan Aykroyd as his as his boss. I was very surprised to see Dan Aykroyd show up in this. I knew that Bill Murray was in it, but I wasn't that aware that Dan Aykroyd was in this. Kind of small role, but he does a really good job with it. Welcome to the Authority, back at it. I'm Buck Keller. I'm your immediate supervisor. Have a seat. You'll be sitting here in the observation booth. You'll observe all vehicles. Any vehicle or vehicles which exhibit a sign or signs of disrepair of any nature. Bad tires, pocketed, a cracked windshield, missing a hanging body parts, fenders, chrome, grills, doors, panels, side moldings, lubricant leakage of any kind, missing, hanging, and dragging, and broken bulbs, lenses, and lamps, and especially Cyclops vehicles. Look for them. They are vehicles with only one working headlight and all foreign platers. That is vehicles with all out-of-state plates, especially New Jersey and Connecticut. Now, you will depress this red button here, which in turn activates the red light outside, which causes the vehicles to stop. We'll then use this public address microphone to inform the vehicle's drivers that they are to turn around and get out of the tunnel. Yeah, it's a shame he couldn't have been in there more. I, I, I loved Bill Murray in this because he was so, uh, he was holding back, I felt like. You know, he has the potential to, to really steal scenes and he does kind of steal scenes in this, but you can kind of tell that he's playing a character that's a lot calmer than you would, especially at that time in his career. I'm sure he would really wanted to let loose and, and go crazy in this film. And, and it's kind of nice to see that he didn't. Welcome aboard the Alpha Cruiser. At this time, we'd like to advise you as to the safety equipment aboard the craft. Above your heads are oxygen units, which will be used in the unlikely event of a depressurization. If they are released, just hold them over your face and breathe normally. On behalf of the cabin crew, Mr. Brown, your driver, Frida Shimkus, your stewardess, and myself, Ted Bruegel, your sky host. We hope you have a pleasant journey. If there's anything we can do to make your trip more comfortable, please don't hesitate to ask. We will commence the lunar teeny service as soon as we're underway. Yeah, he's, I mean, God, talk about a person with an interesting career. It really feels to me like he had kind of several careers as we went through stuff. I mean, he just, um, you know, he, he he could be that crazy guy uh, in, you know, the, the wild and crazy guy. Literally, he could be that person. Um, you know, as broad as he was, like in something like Caddyshack. But then, you know, he could be really kind of quiet and serious in something like Tootsie where he had some great laugh lines and stuff, but it's like people forget that he was in Tootsie because he isn't that broad comedian, you know? And of course he's being overshadowed by so many other people, especially Dustin Hoffman, but you know, he's got a great role in the film and it's, it's funny how he can kind of, you know, turn it on and, and turn it off. I mean, he can be really deadly serious in some things and then, you know, 
wacky and other stuff. I mean, for me, some of the best stuff that he's done is where he's able to do both. You know, something like a Stripes or a um, Groundhog Day versus something like a, uh, I don't know, What About Bob? For some reason, with that one, I think with What About Bob, it was more Richard Dreyfus that really turned me off from that one. Quick Change is another favorite that I, I think gets overlooked. Definitely gets overlooked, mm-hmm. and I think that was one where I went in expecting more of a Peter Venkman kind of, you know, broader comedy kind of thing, and it's definitely not that. And I think in years since then, I've grown to appreciate that movie a lot more. But I also think that he kind of felt burned by some of the more serious roles that he had done, stuff like um, Where the Buffalo Roam and The Razor's Edge, where he wasn't necessarily doing that ham-fisted, I-want-to-be-taken-serious-as-an-actor kind of thing, like Jim Carrey and The Majestic. But, you know, he was able to do this stuff, and it seemed like it took a lot of years for the world to kind of catch up with him as being able to be a serious actor. I agree. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 But getting oh, back I mean, to this film, I, one of my one of my favorite gags in this film that I forgot about. I just rewatched it the other day, and I'd completely forgotten the whole reason why buses go to the moon, and the the way that it's explained to him how old people have a chip implanted in them so that they can't say the word moon. Instead, they say the word Miami. You gotta be careful. Anyway, every time we take a trip. The government would send our postcards via Miami. So it looked like we were having just a little vacation, you know. I'm writing this to my grandson. You have to write three. Our families don't even know the difference. But didn't you ever talk about visiting the moon? Oh, yes, of course. But the chip they put in prevents us from saying moon. Chip? What's that? It's a little electronic thingamajig. They put it in right here, right in the base of your skull. Whenever you try to say the word moon, it changes it to Miami. <laughs> By Imogene Coca, of all people. It was great to see her show up. So when these old people go to Denny's, do they end up ordering the Miami over Miami? Oh. <laughs> that's actually pretty good. Or the yeah. Miami? Sorry. But we we need like a Svengoolie sound effect right there. Right. <laughs> So apparently there are different versions of this film. I I found this out while I was reading Michael Streeter's book called Nothing Lost Forever. And the version that I sent to you guys has a scene that wasn't available in the TCM broadcast, which is another version that I watched lately. And apparently even that is different than some other scenes that are around. The scene of... Adam throwing his papers out the window and kind of dedicating himself to the Buddha and Jesus the Christ and all these people as he's, you know, saying that he's going to be an artist. I hereby end my stay in Europe and will return to the United States. I pray to God, the Buddha, James Joyce, Ramakrishna, and Jesus the Christ that I will become an artist, no matter what. That scene ends up missing in some versions, and then the other scene is the actual art test itself, where he goes in and is trying to draw, um, I I think it was a a female figure, and that scene isn't on TCM. Welcome to the Port Authority Art Test. This is a test to discover if you have any artistic skills which would be valuable to the borough of Manhattan. Get set now. And draw. 
form and contour are important. Are you remembering the use of shadow to add drama and enhance highlights? <laughs> Remember, the results of this test will determine your status as a bona fide artist. Uh -huh. We're running out of time now. Thanks for your participation. The results will now be assessed by the proper Port Authority officials. When it airs again in a couple weeks here, um, just be aware that there is a scene that's missing. But it's it's kind of sad that there isn't necessarily a good-looking, complete version. Because the TCM version looks a lot better than the version that you guys saw. Though I won't say that it's pristine um, by any means. I, I think that uh, there may be a sight gag that's hard to see on these sort of poor-quality copies in the art test at the very end, when you actually see what he drew, <laughs> it looked like it was just a dark triangle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I saw yeah. that correctly. Okay. Good. That, that's what it looked like to me too. Yeah. Like he was focusing in on one area. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I right, wasn't, sh wasn't sure if I was getting that right or not. The person more than anybody else that shows up in the movie that I'm so happy to see is Calvert DeForest, known by many, including me, as Larry Bud Melman. I can see the man in the mood. He's smiling at me. I just love that guy, and I was so happy to see him show up. And I had never really seen him outside of things like Freaked or the David Letterman show or the um, Run DMC video. I think it's King of Rock. but So to see him show up kind of in a, I won't say more normal way, but kind of more integrated with the lunacy that's going on. It was really good to see that. Yeah. I was trying to remember like, when did Letterman start doing the, having the Larry Bud Melman character on, if that was before this or. I want to say it was right around the same time. So this would have been shot in like 82 going into 83. The copyright on the film is actually 83, whereas IMDb says 84. And I think they tried to release this in 84 to kind of capitalize on Gremlins and Ghostbusters coming out in 84. But um, yeah, so I think it was right around that same time, but I won't swear to it. One of the things I see, like both times I've watched it now, the very last thing in the film is an ad for the soundtrack album. Yes. Which I've never seen a copy of that I know of. And uh, and ever since the first time I saw this film, I've been looking for one. And uh, I wonder if it actually exists. I don't think it exists. Though, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, it exists a little bit in a slightly modified form. Hmm. Yes. Hmm. Yes. 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 Yeah. The other thing that I liked about the moon sequence that I found funny was... Um, when he's out and there's you know various things on the moon and he gets to one of them and it says Acme Prop Company Cape Canaveral Florida, so the whole idea of the moon landing being fake and the whole thing that the moon is like I guess a um, I, I guess it's like an outlet, you know it's like in, in Michigan it's like Birch Run it's like all the people go up there and they just buy stuff that's all it is it's a it's a commercial space as the Bill Murray character tells him that is a funny idea that like. You know, we're taking senior citizens to the moon to shop. I mean, of all the things that could be done on the moon, and that it's this like sort of forced—I don't even know how to describe what it is. It, it seems very sinister, but very sinister, yeah. But, but why? I mean, <laughs> what is the purpose of that? 
Was it explained? And I'm just forgetting the details. I, I don't remember it actually being explained. Not necessarily, because at one point, like, you've got these two control guys, and they're kind of watching how the sales are going, and then Bill Murray comes in, and he's just like, yes, yes, shop! And it's just like, why is he so excited about this? I mean, yeah, it, it there is this sinister edge to it, but it's not necessarily explained. And it's like when they are entering into the big warehouse to do their shopping. I mean, it kind of reminded me of like, um, you know, in uh, a forbidden zone when they go into hell, you know, it's like for lose all hope ye who enter here or whatever. I just was kind of expecting that, that it was almost like a trick, you know, getting these folks up there, but definitely they've been up there time and time and time again. I love the one woman that all these old people wearing these, um, great sunglasses, their, their moon glasses. And the one woman who's just clearly not an actress, but I just love her delivery of stuff. She's just so blunt about everything. <laughs> As they're going along and just like they ask her a question, no, you know, yes. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, definitely it fits in with that whole like Larry Bud Melman kind of non-actor actor kind of thing. I mean, but with her, I definitely don't think that she had, uh, you know, studied her Stella Adler or anything. Yeah. The other thing with the moon is that it adds this element of Hawaii because when they get off the bus, all of the, the gals are there and they're doing these hula dances and uh, the Bill Murray character is like, now watch, because each movement means something. And he's trying to explain what the movements mean, you know, which, you know, we, I've never been to Hawaii, but I get the impression that from TV shows and film that like everybody's greeted when they get off the plane by hula dancers and they welcome you to the island. And now as a special treat, our lovely lunar maidens are going to welcome you in their own way. Pay close attention. For every little movement has a meaning all its own. We welcome you, our Earth visitors, to the moon. We hope that your voyage was safe and happy. And we invoke the name of our lunar god, Consumers, who makes your shopping baskets overflow with many bargains. Major credit cards are graciously accepted. Have a nice step. Aren't they dolls? That's because I know you were in Hawaii at least, what, like seven, eight years ago, something like that? Something like Did that. Did they... Did they greet you when you got off the plane like that? Because I know they did that to the Brady Bunch. I was greeted. Uh, I don't remember who it was, but somebody put a lay around my head. So you got laid on the Isle of Maui? As soon as I got off the plane, they put a lay around my head. And it was like a real lay. It wasn't like the cheap plastic one. It was actually made out of flowers. It smelled really nice. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if everybody gets that or just certain airlines or maybe the the vacation package that we had booked or whatever but yeah as soon as we got off the plane we got laid all right very nice the other thing that i love on here is when eloy and adam go off she makes him tea with this sort of rube goldberg tea machine contraption which is fitting i guess since they're in a uh, buckminster fuller geodesic dome on the moon <laughs> it's like yeah that whole scene was pretty awesome and then their love song and everything was great I mean, the music, you, you know, to go back to your points, because the music in this movie is fantastic and just, again, kind of mixes everything. Like, I just rewatched the, the movie a couple hours ago and just hearing 
the opening where they kind of mix together the uh, the Chopin and the um, the the shopping song and uh, the love song and just all of these things kind of mixed together in that opening number, just to, you know, like the, uh, the prologue kind of thing. It's like, yeah, this really works and it all flows together. So definitely kudos to Howard Shore on all that. Looking at uh, Bill Murray on here uh, where he finds uh, he like breaks through the, the wall of the dome and um, they separate the two. And he, I think he punches him and then he says, sorry. Ow! Sorry. Like, I like the idea that he's right. a bad guy, but he's like a kind of a polite bad guy. Like he feels bad afterwards. Well, he is in the hospitality business. <laughs> I was looking to see whether this movie was based on a story from a book. And the the one interesting tidbit that I've discovered was that there was a book called nothing lasts forever that was turned into a movie, but that movie was die hard. This movie <laughs> has nothing to do with die hard. As far as we know. Oh yeah. True. Yippee-ki-yay. <laughs> <laughs> the origins of Ted Bruegel becoming Hans Gruber. I can see it. Um, so yeah, we should say spoilers here because we want to talk about the ending a little bit. I mean, I've talked a little bit about Adam getting punched back to earth, <laughs> which I love. And, uh, sort of the reverse friend, of, uh, the honeymooners there, you know, yeah, to the moon, Alice, yeah. to the earth, <laughs> to the earth, Adam. Yes. <laughs> so what do you want to talk about the end, Rob? Oh, you just, uh, it's, it's a nice little bookend to the front where, you know, he ends up back in the concert hall and he's playing the piano and everything's going swimmingly. And then this mysterious lady shows up in the car and all the, uh, flowers get thrown on stage, but there's an interesting looking flower. And then he realizes that it was one of those moon blossoms and she's there. I love that it's Lawrence Tierney driving the carriage. <laughs> just such a nothing bit but it was just like oh nice and the hillbilly it, it didn't show up to that that performance no he must not have had tickets that night uh, no he he learned he learned his lesson the first time that's right he's like i ain't gonna pay for no player piano but yeah pretty much everybody else shows up i mean we've got uh uncle morton and anita and just yeah all these people show up in the audience which was terrific um though i don't think yeah i don't think bill murray is there either so just the the bad people stay away Bad people, stay away. Yes. I think there might have been a sign up front. Yeah. But there's also, it connects in that 1930s, 1940s um, credits because the opening of the film and the end of the film has that same feel of borrowing, like we said, from like 30s film in terms of how the credits are designed and all that. And of course, there's like the VN and it's, you know, that lovely scroll work, you know, and the MGM logo and all that stuff. So, uh, so that's interesting. The, the other thing that was interesting, at least in the credits, and I don't remember being introduced to a Dr. Bronner in here, but it says, Oh yeah. Dr. Bronner himself. And I'm like the soap guy. He is the guy who's above that entrance when the, um, the old people are going into the Luna mall and actually that's where that old woman comes in. When uh, somebody asks her, who's that? She says, I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, that is Dr. Bronner, the, the Dr. Bronner himself. And I think you can even hear him talk about like the soap products and stuff as, as people are kind of being driven into there on their trams. That's interesting. Cause I saw a documentary on Dr. Bronner and his soap that was on Netflix really? a few years ago. Yeah. So, 
he was kind of a uh, a fascinating kook who created uh, soap and had this sort of, um, I guess, like uh, hippie philosophy before even the hippies were around. Like I think he started it in like the 30s or the 40s or something like that. I never would have known Dr. Bronner at all, but I had a friend uh, who she was one of these people who claimed she was deathly allergic to all this stuff. It kind of reminded me of... Uh, I believe the character's name was Carol White, Julianne Moore in Safe. She kind of reminded me of that, and she only could use Dr. Bronner's soap. So I never knew what the hell Dr. Bronner's soap was until I was able to find it for her as like a gift. So and then when Dr. Bronner came back 20-some years later, it's like, oh, this is the guy who made the soap that my crazy friend could use. Now I get it. See, Dr. Bronner's soap had always been one of those like hippie things, like patchouli to me and, and all that stuff, where it was, it's like, what is it, like a 20-in-1 soap, like you can clean everything, wash everything with it, you, you know, kind of stuff. And it's all like fair trade and made out of hemp oil or something, so it's, um, you know, good for the environment and all that stuff. Do you think that Dr. Bronner had a son and his name was Tom and he lived in Vermont? I'm not sure. But that documentary is pretty good if you're interested in learning more about the uh, soap maven. There you go. All right. Skiz got it. I'm just still processing that one. <laughs> you should go in your bathroom. Look at your toothpaste tube. Isn't that Tom's of Vermont? Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's Tom's. No. I think, are you getting confused with Tom of Finland? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I bought some art books yeah. by him once. That's yeah, my that guy. Yeah. What's in the tube? Uh oh. It's very greasy. All right, we're going to take a break and play a series of interviews. First up is Michael Streeter, the author of Nothing Lost Forever, a look at the films of Tom Schiller after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamNeed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. But we're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. 
Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios! Hello from Cinema Detroit, Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema. We deliver an eclectic mix of current indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former school and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Tumblr. We look forward to seeing you soon at 3420 Cass Avenue in Midtown Detroit, 48201. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. All right, man, it's time. It's time. Are we ready for the list? The list. So we all made this list earlier. We sat around. Maybe got, right. maybe got a little too high. Well, you know, this list. We, we did get too high because we only made half the list. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. in uh, Dutchland? Yeah, um, actually, when uh, my book came out, we had an event at uh, Lincoln Center uh, with uh, with Bill Murray and, and Tom Schiller and uh, Zach Galligan and uh, Leila Nabolsi, the uh, she was an associate producer, and he uh, remarked in front of the you know sold out uh, crowd at at the Walter Reed Theater that I had a uh, what was it a half Dutch half St Louis slacker accent. <laughs> that was pretty funny. I'm kind of proud of that one. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I grew up in uh, grew up in Holland. Moved when I was a teenager. Was this your first book? Yeah, it's my first and only book. I never uh, uh, never wrote anything after. I, I was uh, it was a topic I was very passionate about, and uh, I've yet to find anything that I was uh, equally equally uh, excited about uh, writing about. Uh, or at least not a topic that, uh, you know, where I had someone who, uh, you know, agreed to it. There, there have been other, uh, there have been topics I've, uh, sought after and, uh, they passed on it. But, um, but in terms of, in terms of a, uh, a project where I had, uh, cooperation from the subject and, and people who worked with him, uh, yeah, it's, it's my only book. How old were you when you saw Nothing Lasts Forever the first time? You know, I saw it on, I, I was probably between 11, 12, 13 years old. I, it was on Dutch television in the middle of the night, uh, or well, not middle of the night. It was probably like, you know, 12.30 or 1 a.m. They, they they would show uh, uh, often, they'd have prime time and then a late movie and then a late, late movie. And so it was the late, late movie that night. And um, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was just so uh, bizarre to me. It was, um, you know, I'd never really known about Saturday Night Live, but um, I was a big fan of Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and uh, and Gremlins. So seeing at that age, seeing this weird black and white color, strange movie was uh, just, uh, it was a very odd experience that really stuck with me. And, and back then all the, you know, all we had was the, the TV guide. That's all the information I was able to, to find out about it was, you know, a brief summary from the cast and the year it came out. So I never, you know, for a few years after that, I was never able to, to look up, you know, to find out more about the movie. It wasn't until, you know, a couple of years later when we had the internet and, and uh, uh, I was able to find out uh, more about it. But even then it was, there was very little information about it. It was always this kind of weird film that nobody really knew anything about. That was such a weird period to be in when you would know of a film and you couldn't really tell anybody about it. I mean, you could tell people about the film, but Obviously, not everybody knows about this movie, and you can't point to, like, well, it's over at the video store. It it can't become a hit that way. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah, and even for me then, even, you know, in Holland, people that I went to school with, you know, none of them watched movies. I was the only movie person. Like, I'd, I'd talk about a movie star, and they'd have, you know, the biggest movie stars, they'd have no clue. I was uh, <laughs> I didn't really have anyone to talk about movies with, so... Um, but, but yeah, in general too, yeah, you could, you couldn't really refer anyone to a, uh, to a video store or yeah, different time. So how do you go from liking this film? Maybe did you obsess about it a little bit as you're like kind of getting older and thinking about it? Or how did you go from that to deciding that you want to do this project? Uh, you know, it was kind of one of those things that every once in a while you think about it. Uh, so for a few years, it would just pop into my, into my brain and I, you know, remember it and, you know, I'd have just a few memories of it. And, um, a couple of years, I guess, shortly after that, 
I uh, started watching Saturday Night Live. It was on uh, the Air Force Network in in Holland, and we lived near an Air Force base, and we we were able to to uh, to kind of we had some special connection. We were able to to get into that and and watch it. And um, so I watched Saturday Night Live, and it was a, I was a, a big fan. And then uh, moving to the U.S., I became a huge Saturday Night Live fan uh, and loved the classic era, the 80s and the 90s. I loved I loved all of it. And I became um, really interested in the uh, the short films that Tom Schiller did. And then, you know, sometime in the mid-90s, I guess I got, uh, you know, everyone connected to the Internet and were able to look stuff up. And I made the connection that that guy was the same guy who did um, Nothing Lasts Forever. So it's still one more step, though, for you to go from that connection and everything to saying, this is what I want to do. I want to write about this film and about this director that people aren't that familiar with. Yeah. So I guess, I guess a couple, yeah. So I guess a couple years later, I was in college, uh, went to film school uh, or did film studies. And, and, um, I, I really, it was more, I was more driven by wanting to see the film again at that point. And I, um, I struck up a correspondence with, with Tom Schiller and, um, I guess he didn't get a lot of, uh, fan mail about, uh, nothing lasts forever because there's so few people that have had seen that film at that point. And at a certain, after corresponding with him for a while, at a certain point, he, uh, he sent me a tape and I got to see the movie again. And I, I just, you know, fell in love with it, uh, again. So based on, you know, my, my interest in his, uh, his short films and his feature and, and, uh, you know, wanting to, kind of uncover what happened there. Why, why was this film never released? What happened? What's the story? There's got to be an interesting story there. And so I started writing about it in college. And after college, I um, got in touch with a, with a publisher who's, who's uh, released, that was releasing, uh, you know, weird books about weird people and weird topics. And, uh, I uh, yeah d- decided to turn it into a uh, into a book. Uh, at that point, I'd already spoken to Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Lauren Michaels. They were all willing to speak to me when I was in in college, and and uh, then I and some of them I spoke to a lot more, and I spoke to a lot of a lot of other people who had uh, you know smaller parts in the film or, or other roles, uh, people who were, worked on set. Wow. It's amazing how this project kind of evolved for you. It sounds like. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I thought, you know, it'd be cool. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, writing a book is something to aspire to. And it was, uh, it was kind of an, an opportunity to, to spend, uh, you know, close to a year that I spent, uh, writing it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it was sort of the right time to do it. I don't know if there was much of a demand for it. You know, nobody knew about the film, but my goal was to get more people interested in it, to to tell more about the story and to sort of, you know, try and elevate this, uh, the movie and, and Tom's work to, uh, uh, you know, something that's uh, worth taking uh, a closer look, a more critical look at. And I, hopefully I succeeded at least a little bit. <laughs> 
So he had Tom's participation, which is crucial. And then all of these other people are open and available to you, which sounds amazing that you're able to get these interviews with, you know, Lauren Michaels and Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and the principal players to this. What were some of the biggest challenges? Did you have any roadblocks while you're trying to get this project done? Not really. Uh, I, I didn't have any road. I mean, there were, there were a few people that didn't want to talk. Uh, Apollonia from Ravenstein, she plays uh, Mara. You know, she was a, um, she was in a model. She was like one of the early supermodels in late seventies, early eighties. And she was in that, you know, kind of that Warhol scene. And she has, she had done a little bit of acting. She did a, a Frederick Wiseman film and she did nothing lasts forever. And then after that, she did a, a film from Holland. She's also from, she's also Dutch. And after that, she just completely left that scene and so she didn't uh, she didn't want to speak. And Howard Shore, I, I had set up an interview with him, but ultimately he um, he declined because there was some sensitivity about you know the the work he'd done on the movie. There was some uh, there were some arguments and, and um, disagreements on the score uh, and some and some feelings hurt and. Um, ultimately, Tom and, and Howard, they, you know, they they see each other at at um, SNL reunions, and and they they buried the hatchet. So it wasn't really something he was interested in in speaking about either, uh, which is fine. You know, I don't think anyone is required to to participate. But in terms of getting anyone to speak, the the first person I really spoke to after Tom was Bill Murray. And at that time, he was he was kind of reclusive. Uh, he, I mean, on the one hand, he's very accessible to to fans and and people. He shows up everywhere. But at at that time, I guess it was about twelve years ago, he was very much not connected. Um, so it, for me, it was a big deal to, to to get him. And he was the first person, and uh, and people have just so much respect for him that once I'd spoken to him, uh, you know, I just had to mention, you know, I've already talked to Tom and Bill and, and everyone just participated. Uh, and plus, uh, Lauren Michaels, he was also, um, you know, sort of on board with it very early on and very happy to clear things up because that was also a, a kind of a sensitive situation where, um, Tom thought that Lauren could have done more to get the movie released. Uh, and also a lot of other people had the thought that it was Lauren who kind of put a, put a stop to releasing the film. Uh, and so it, it kind of offered Lauren uh, the opportunity to, to clear that up and uh, explain that it was really beyond his control. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the big mystery, and that's the thing... Even coming at this film, you know, from a much more of an outsider perspective than what you have currently, just, you know, for years I heard rumors of this movie. It was kind of on the, the gray market, this kind of stuff, but it was always a mystery of why is there this film that does have these, you know, name actors, you know, the guy from Gremlins is in it, and, you know, this guy and that guy. 
why is this movie not out there? And people had their theories and everything. And when you were looking at this, I mean, what was your theory going into it? And what did you find as you were kind of uncovering the truth? So when I wrote the book and when I wrote about it before, before it became a book, it was even Tom didn't really know what exactly happened. And, and I think there still isn't really a definitive account of, of what, really happened beyond, you know, it was just a, a studio at, at, you know, at, at uh, on the verge of shutting down and uh, not seeing any commercial viability in it. But going into it, I, I, yeah, I didn't really know. I, I, I had no idea if it was, you know, some kind of personal thing with uh, the heads at NGM and that's probably a, a small part of it. Um, or if it was Lorne, I, I had no idea, but, but on the, on the other hand, I wasn't completely surprised because it, it, on the one hand, it's, it's 19, it was 1984. It would have come out. That was the year of gremlins and ghostbusters. It, that would have been the right time to put it out. But on the other hand, you know, it, it's just such an odd movie the general public would have would have just hated it. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's a lot of people who who love the movie, but but um, you know, the average moviegoer buying a ticket to to see a uh, Zach Galligan and Bill Murray movie uh, would have been disappointed. I can see that, but at the same time, it's just such a a great film that it 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 hurts me to admit that you are probably 100% right. I mean, there's no way that this would have caught on with the public. But it's still, there are releases for other sleeper films. You know, I mean, if Mike Judge can get a release for his films, it seems like Tom Schiller should have been able to have a release for his film. Yeah, exactly. It should have a life at least on DVD, and it doesn't even have that, which is just bizarre, you know, that it didn't sneak out on the VHS when there was that need for all the the shelves in the video store to have titles on it. Yeah. And it even, it didn't even become a, you know, like an underground video thing. It, it, it was only, you know, sort of leaked, you know, in the last few years, 10, 15 years ago, um, um, you know, I'd have, I would have expected a movie like this to be popular uh, on the, you know, one of those films that just kind of circulates and, and people trade with each other, but that never, I mean, there was a little bit of that. I've heard of people, you know, finding a tape of it in the, you know, early nineties in LA and stuff like that, but it wasn't, it wasn't very widespread. Right. Do you have any insights why you'd think that might be? Yeah, I don't know. I think it was just not a, um, I, I, I don't know. It's it's so under the radar radar that it's that it's even too under the radar for for that kind of uh, you know cult following. I really appreciate that your book isn't just nothing lasts forever. That there is so much more to it, especially those early shorts of Tom Schiller's. Those are just amazing, and that you're able to write about the ones that were available, and then the ones that didn't necessarily play on Saturday Night Live. I really was glad to read about those films. I think those shorts are just brilliant. And, and I think um, when Tom did do a, do the feature, it was something that really complemented those shorts. It was the same 
sensibility. It was, you know, it was, you know, those were real Tom Schiller films. They had his, his brand and his sense of humor and his, uh, sensibilities. So I, I loved those shorts and, and, um, yeah, as I said before, it was, it was something that I didn't immediately connect when I, when I first saw the shorts, but it totally makes sense. They're, they're, they're very similar. Some of the stories from the set of nothing lasts forever are pretty remarkable too. And I was glad that there's that amount of time uh, that we have between when it was filmed and now, and you talk about how um, you know Bill Murray sometimes he's kind of mercurial when it comes to is he the happy Bill Murray or the not so happy Bill Murray, and that that came across on set too. I was glad to read some of those accounts. Yeah, it was almost like he was, um, you know, really staying in character. You know, the method acting where he was, you know, he had to be a a jerk to Zach. So in, in the, you know, to, to Adam Beckett, the character. So he, uh, was a kind of a jerk to him on the set when they weren't filming. And one thing to consider though, was that, you know, regardless of whether he was doing that, you know, to aid in playing the character or not, he was filming, uh, Tootsie at the same time. Uh, I think he was doing Tootsie during the day and, this at night for I think it was like two weeks, so it was very uh, it was very tough on him. Uh, he had a, uh, a very busy schedule, and he was uh, you know just doing it as a favor to to Tom. Well, it had to be tough on him, and it had to be tough on Aykroyd too with the recent death of of uh, John Belushi. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's something interesting. I I I, I well, at least I think it's very interesting, and it's kind of left out of the, you know, nothing lasts forever story when it's, when it's written about, um, John had died. I forget how many weeks before it was, but it was, uh, around the time that they were doing, uh, they were in pre-production and John was going to be in the movie. He was going to play the Paul Rogers character and they went a complete they went in a completely different direction with that character after John passed. But that was, he was supposed to have a, you know, like, well, Aykroyd kind of has a, you know, a couple cameos, you know, he probably did a day or two. Uh, and, and, uh, Bill Murray, you know, has a, what I consider a supporting part. He kind of plays the villain and, uh, Belushi would have had, uh, yeah, sort of a, a, uh, supporting part in it. He would have been in uh, a number of scenes in the movie. Yeah, it was, I forget how many weeks before. I think it was like five or eight or something. It was really tough on a lot of people who, a lot of people who worked on the movie. It was Broadway videos, Lorne, Lorne's production company. Uh, a lot of people behind the scenes there had worked with uh, John at SNL. So it was, it was a tough time. In fact, Layla Nabolsi, she was the, uh, She's credited as an associate producer. She was producer on Tom Shorts, and she was also a, uh, a producer on SNL. She did the short films, uh, I think, in the year that Lauren came back. I think it was like 85 or 86. She also went on to do, um, she produced Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. She was um, Hunter S. Thompson's girlfriend. And she was really close to John. And she, um, yeah, halfway through, she, she just had to leave the production because it was just too, uh, too tough for her. And, uh, yeah, she told me about, about times where 
where it was just uh, very difficult on people. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, and I know, like, with uh, Tom, it seemed like he was fairly close to John Belushi as well. And then, you know, his uh, Belushi's wife involved with everything. I mean, it must have just been terrible. Yeah, Tom and John were very close. You know, they, you know, gone vacation together and stuff like that. They were they were good friends. And John's widow actually makes uh, makes an appearance in in the movie. There's a a scene where Adam and Mara go to the uh, to the weird uh, rock concert, a weird industrial type concert, ex- experimental art show. And uh, the band was, uh, Judy Belushi was in the band, and so was uh, Peter Aykroyd, Dan's brother, who was a, uh, a cast member on SNL as well. Did I read right? Is Bob Balaban in the film? Bob Balaban? Uh, not that I've heard of. Okay. No. He seems to be on IMDb, and I was like, I don't remember seeing him. Oh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> not that, that I remember, been... no. Okay. That must have been another real challenge for you with not only who you were able to speak to, but then so much of the cast has probably passed away over the years as well. Yeah, I mean, well, I think I had a good I had a good number of people to speak to. Uh, and, and most valuable was uh, Zach Allican, who just has, number one, an, an amazing memory. Uh, he just remembers everything. And, and number two, an amazing talent at recounting those memories and, and telling those stories and, 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 uh, sharing everything that happened. Uh, he was really great. Yeah. There, I mean, there weren't too many people that I, I, I got, I got most of the people that I really needed to speak to, uh, at that point, uh, Calvert DeForest, I'd hoped to talk to him, but he, I was informed that he was, you know, I think he had, um, Alzheimer's or, or something, or he was uh, senile or something like he wasn't a, you know, that, that was kind of a, a bummer. I was uh, sad that I couldn't get to, couldn't find out what, what his uh, take on it all was. Calvert DeForest, um, for those of, uh, for those who don't know, is uh, Larry Bud Melman from Letterman. Letterman started around the same time that this, that Nothing Lasts Forever was filmed. And so he was a, uh, he was just one of the New York cattle call casting sessions. He was just one of those people that came in and Tom thought he looked funny, sounded funny. He just seemed like a real character. And at that point, I don't remember if it was just before or just after he had started Letterman, but, uh, but yeah, Tom just thought that was just a, a great character and, and, uh, and it gave him some, some great lines in the movie. He is so memorable in there, and I was just so glad to see him show up. And I'm bouncing off the couch. Oh, look, it's Larry Bud Melman, and my wife's like, "Who? Yeah. What are you talking about?" <laughs> yeah, and he he fits in so so perfectly among those those all those characters. Um, Tom told me Tom and um, I forget who it was, one of the production managers, or they told me about the the casting sessions they had, and they they looked for people who you're more unique and, and just looked like they belonged in a 1930s movie. Larry Bud Melman is one of those people that was both. Uh, and he wasn't even that old. He's supposed to be, he's supposed to play a 
you know, senior citizen. He wasn't even <laughs> that old then. He just <laughs> he just didn't look. He just looked old. Uh, and 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 the funny thing is, he I was told by I forget who told me this, but he had his he had his teeth fixed afterwards. So he had terrible teeth in the movie, and I guess I guess you can see it in early Letterman. And he had them fixed, and I don't know at what point, like in the mid-80s or something, he had his teeth fixed. And, <laughs> uh, it, it's just a, it's a huge difference. Just so many great faces in there, and just such a, a wonderful look to the film as well. I mean, the black and white looks beautiful, and then the color is just gorgeous. I can't get over how great it looks. They wanted to, Tom wanted to film it in, you know, the black and white scenes in black and white and the color and in color and the studio wouldn't allow it. Uh, I mean, they didn't even want black and white in the film period, but it serves an important function in, in the story. You know, when they go to the, when they go to the, well, first the underground world, uh, it becomes color and then the moon is color. Freddie Fields at MGM said just just film it in color because if it's if it's color you can always turn it into black and white and you can't do it the other way around i think it looks beautiful the 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 only thing is have you ever seen the film projected or just on just on video i don't know how well it's captured on video because what's been shown on television is an old video master from from the mid 80s but there are a couple prints two different versions of the film actually that have, have been shown around the world in the last 10 years or so. And the, uh, yeah, the, the color cinematography, the color, it, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's just beautiful. Uh, and it, it provides that wizard of Oz like moment where, you know, it signals a, a different world. When you started rolling this, this ball, getting this project going, were you prepared to watch the film and pick it apart as much as you have over these last few years or over the time that you were doing the the project? So part of my book was my goal was to do kind of a hybrid of the story of how the film was made and the store and, and sort of a, you know, an analysis of the film and, what I think it means, what it mean, meant to me, what, what Tom was trying to do with it, what, what things symbolize. I don't think that's a very popular way of, of uh, telling a story. I, don't, I haven't seen too many books that, that kind of do that, do it in that hybrid way. But that's, that's what I wanted to do. I, I, I kind of set out to, to write the book that I would have wanted to read. So I, I try to, to do both, to, to tell the stories and try to deconstruct it and tear it apart and and get down to why I think it's such an uh, endearing film. Um, so yeah, I watched I've watched the movie yeah many times. Uh, I watched it you know frame by frame almost uh, really to to get down to uh, what I think Tom was trying to do and, and certain things that maybe he wasn't trying to do that nonetheless say something interesting. Um, so Tom, uh, this, the, the movie is about Adam trying to become an artist and he doesn't really have any skill. And, and I think that was just Tom 
trying to to tell a story uh, with some personal autobiographical aspects in it. But I think it's very interesting because it's it's a film, it's a story about someone wanting to become an artist who doesn't really have any talent. He just really wants to be an artist. You know, I think we have this ideal that, that the artists we know, the people we respect, they're, they're good at what they do. They're popular because they're passionate about what they do. And they really, you know, a great pianist is a great pianist because they have respect for the for the instrument and that's that's the instrument that allows them to express themselves and i think it's interesting that in in nothing lasts forever he just wants to be an artist to be an artist uh maybe to bring joy to to people but it's not that he wants to be be a great pianist because that's how he expresses himself or I, i i just thought that was very interesting once the project was done, once you uh, pack it off and send it over to the publisher, what's the story of what happened in the book after that? Well, so I, I guess I wrote it in 2004, and it came out in 2005. So before it came out, the before the book came out, there was a a retrospective at the Brooklyn Academy of Music they have a uh, Brooklyn Academy music music is a uh, it's a popular arts center in, in Brooklyn where they have theater and music and, and they also have a, uh, a cinema there, the BAM Cinematheque. And for, for a few years, they had tried to get Bill Murray to do a, uh, a retrospective there. And it took a few years, but uh, Bill uh, was willing to do it. Uh, and so they did that in 2003, which was, I'd already, I'd already interviewed him at that time when they came to him, they, he insisted that nothing lasts forever must be a part of the retrospective. And so at at one point he had even asked me through Tom to, to try and help find a, uh, a print of the film. I guess he'd imagined it was some very tough process, but it's actually very easy. It can be booked right through Warner brothers. He told Tom to to tell me like spread my name like butter and you know to try and make this happen as if it was some big <laughs> big challenge. But all I all I had to do was say tell the all I had to do was call the 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 uh, the guy at Bam uh, who was organizing it and say look you can get it right through Warner Brothers they have a print. <laughs> I mean there'd been a few screenings before then. Like in the, I think in the '90s, there was the Museum of Moving Image. They had shown it, but the Brooklyn Academy of Music was the the first um, major screening uh, that the film had, had in a long time, and so they showed they showed it. And Bill Murray introduced the film at at BAM Brooklyn Academy of Music, uh, and then uh, Zach Galligan did a a screening as well. And after that. Um, um, the, so then the next year the book came out and we did another screening at Lincoln Center uh, at the Walter Reed Theater where it had a book signing and uh, Bill was there, Tom, Zach, I'm trying to think who else, Leyland Nabalsi, Tom Davis, who'd written the foreword to the book, he was there. So after that, the movie, uh, yeah, there was a lot more interest in the movie. I don't know if 
part of it had to do with my book and, and part of it was just in, you know, renewed popularity and Bill Murray and, and uh, interest in the film in general. And so since then, it's it's played all over the world. It played at Sitges one year in Spain, uh, the St. Louis International Film Festival. That I lived there at the time, so they uh, had it as a selection that year. It's it's played in uh, California a few times. Um, it, it's been all over the um, I think in uh, Seattle. And yes, yeah, so the book came out uh, at the time of the of the the big Lincoln Center screening, and um, yeah, that's it. Uh, I mean, we we did some publicity. Tom did some publicity. He did some interviews then, and uh, they did a they did an updated version of the book in 2006. So one of the things I don't know if I should say this, but one of the things was we didn't put any pictures in the first printing of the book because there are any actual still photos from nothing lasts forever because we couldn't get proper clearances from, from Warner brothers. I had a huge selection of photos that had been given to me by the photographer, the, the still photographer and Andrew Schwartz. And he had taken some photos on the set that were for his personal use and he let me use those, a few of those, uh, because he owned them. But beyond that, there were no photos from from the actual movie. And for the second edition, people had advised me, you know, these are these are photos intended for press. The actors are fine with it. The the photographer is fine with it. Just use them. And so they did a second they did a second edition where. Um, the, uh, there's some photos we did we did a small selection of photos uh that we added and we you know we made some minor corrections and I'm trying to think if we did some other made some other changes for the second edition but yeah there was a second edition in 2006 and 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 uh that was it have you gone to any screenings or anything since then are you still kind of the champion for the film uh i've tried to i just haven't gotten I haven't gotten very far with it. Um, I mean, I've been in touch with Warner Brothers. They, well, Warner Brothers now. So at the time when the book came out, the home video prospects were pretty slim because even though DVD was huge at the time, Warner Brothers just has so many titles. So it was never anything they were willing to put the... uh, you know, presumably the legal hours into to straighten out and and release because it's hard to justify doing that for a film that you know ultimately nobody's heard about. But a couple of years ago, Warner Brothers started the Warner Archive, and uh, which is great. I mean, I mean they've been putting out hundreds of titles every year. I've I've certainly spent way too much money there on all the stuff they release. But um, I've been in touch with them every now and then they are, they're big fans of the film, but there are some legal, some legal matters that need to be straightened out. They've told me what the legal issues are or what the major legal issues are. It's not that major. There are, there are multiple versions of the film and there's one segment that that would need to be either cleared or fixed. 
yeah, it, it, there's not really a definitive version of the film as, as far as I know. I mean, it's kind of a weird situation. But in any case, I don't want to. I'm not sure if I'm at liberty to to discuss what the the legal hurdles are um, because it's not really my business. But it it's not that big of a deal. But what I think is the problem is they w- would need to allot a certain number of uh, legal hours to to straighten that out, and for a film that just that not not many people know about, uh, that's hard to justify. Um, but hopefully, hopefully at some point they'll they'll straighten it out. I was I was hoping that when um, well you know Batman, that Warner Brothers and, and Fox were able to were able to straighten that out after years and um, the legal spaghetti that is uh, <laughs> nothing lasts forever is not nearly as as complicated as that. But, you know, Batman, it's huge as a lot of fans, the 66 show, nothing lasts forever. You know, very few people know about. Right, right. Yeah, I can see them selling a few more copies of the Batman set than nothing lasts forever, unfortunately. Um, but, yeah, hopefully they'll straighten it out. It, it's not I, I can't see it being that difficult. It's just, you know, that that kind of stuff takes, uh, you know, you need lawyers to straighten that out. Uh, and, uh, they, they have, I mean, obviously they probably have it, have lawyers that, you know, that they use on all their projects, but, you know, they probably have to, they probably have a certain allotment that they'd rather spend on titles that are more popular that they know will, will actually sell. Yeah. There have been a few films that I've contacted them about, and it's usually music issues. I mean, that seems to be the biggest thing is music rights. Yep. Yeah. And there, the problem isn't necessarily always just, the, you know, clearing the music. It's it's the hours spent on clearing the music that, that makes it difficult. So what have you worked on since then? Nothing. Uh, <laughs> I've had a few projects where I've had a few projects where I thought, you know, I'd really like to write about that. But nothing really uh, where I got nothing where I got to the point where I where I felt passionate passionate enough to actually proceed with it and, and, uh, and, and do it. Uh, I mean, when I wrote this book, I spent nearly a year working on it full time and, uh, it just takes a lot of energy, uh, and a lot of time. And, and, uh, uh, you know, I've moved on to, to different things and, and, uh, you know, I had so much fun writing it, uh, and so much fun, uh, you know, dealing with Tom, uh, and, uh, you know, Bill Murray. I mean, I got to have dinner with him and, and, you know, it, it was just, uh, an amazing experience. And, and, uh, even other people like Tom Davis, uh, who was another writer at SNL, I became great friends with, with him. And, and, um, that was, uh, you know, that's something I really cherish, but, uh, so I, I it was a lot of fun working on it, but, uh, I've yet to find a, you know, another, uh, subject that, that I could see myself having that much to be that much, that passionate about that. I'd want to devote that much time and energy to it. Oh yeah. I, (laughs) I know from that, I know (laughs) you gotta have a lot of passion before you even think about doing that. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, yeah, I really cherish the, you know, the, even my friendship with with uh, with Tom Schiller. He's been uh, he's been a, a great friend over the past 
I guess I've known him for about 12 years now, 12 or 13 years. He married me in uh, uh, two years ago. He, um, I met my wife at the Anthology Film Archives in uh, New York. When we decided to get married, we decided to, let, to get married at the at the place we met, we we uh, married in the theater, and Tom uh, officiated. He uh, he married us. It was uh, and dressed as a uh, as a count Count Schiller. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was quite a, it was a Halloween wedding. Quite an experience. Yeah. Oh wow, that is and he's great. Just, he's just the funniest guy. I don't know if you've had a chance to speak with him, but he is the the funniest guy. And and uh, I, I always wish he'd done another film maybe he will someday but even if he even if he doesn't i, I think uh he has an amazing body of work uh even though i got to write about it and tell lots of people about it i, I wish more people uh knew about it uh, i think he's just a, a brilliant guy yeah such a nice guy he i talked to him yesterday and he was so sweet you know and that was the thing that just kept coming through is just how genuine he seems and i was really appreciated that yeah definitely Next up, the woman who played Eloy, Lauren Tong. I was curious, how did you get your start in the business? Oh, um, I started out as a dancer. Um, I'm from Chicago originally, and um, I was uh, in a dance company called the Hubbard Street Dance Company. I was 17 years old, and um, the show A Chorus Line came through town because it was the first national tour. And there was a part in that show for a tiny Asian girl. <laughs> and I couldn't sing or act, but I could really dance well. So they cast me and then they trained me on the road for a year and, um, you know, gave me singing lessons and taught me the part. And I, I did it for a year on the road and then they brought me to Broadway and I did it for two years there. So it was kind of one of those fall in your lap gifts from the universe that I just thought, oh my God, I just hit the jackpot. So that was really a fun start to a career. And everyone was so much older than me in that cast. And they gave me some great advice, which was, you know, you really should study acting seriously because otherwise you'll be done by the time you're 35, just like an athlete, you know, dancers knees don't last that long. So I did that and I started um, transitioning into, you know, acting roles and realize, oh my gosh, this is so much easier than dancing. So um, I think, if I recall correctly, that Nothing Lasts Forever was one of my first movies. Um, so that was just also such a gift. Uh, I think I had another small little part in um, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. But for sure, it was either like the first or second movie I did. <laughs> What was that experience like for you? And uh, do you remember your audition and all that? I do. I, that that was just one of those auditions that went so well that I've actually never had anything to compare it to since in the 30 years that I've been in this business. And that's because Tom Schiller and I just really clicked. And for whatever reason, um, I think that I just sounded and looked exactly like the image he had in his head when he was writing the piece. And I've tried to really hang on to that um, experience to help me through other auditions, you know, down the road when you, it's such a 
you know, obviously it's such a tough business and you have to have a real grounded sense of yourself because, you know, it's just so visual and, and people have said, you know, right to my face, you know, you're just not pretty enough or you're not tall enough, you're not this or that. And so to um, just have, he told me right in the room in that moment that I had the job. And I don't think that's ever happened since. Wow. And it was just so exciting. And also it was one of my first jobs ever. And so I just couldn't believe that. But the thing that I I try to hang on to is that how not personal it, it is in the sense that sometimes you just match up to to what the creator was thinking, you know, and, and other times you don't. And it, it oftentimes has nothing to do with your talent. It has so much more to do with um, so many other pieces that you may not know about. And so whenever people ask me, you know, what advice I have for them in the business, I always try to say, try your hardest to not take, not to take anything personally because it, it's just too hard otherwise. And um, like I said, there's, there's, there's pieces that you don't know about as far as like matching you up with other cast members, what the vision of the creator had in his head, you know, you remind them of their ex-wife and they can't stand that person. Like you just can't go down that path of trying to second guess. So, uh, but, but that was just one of the happiest experiences. And Tom was just this little mischievous imp of a man who just was magical and fun. And um, the audition was so much, it just was one of those great, you know, experiences that I'll never forget. And I think, I think both of us were jumping up and down. <laughs> because you've met him, right? He has a, a real childlike quality that makes him so endearing, too. You know, He's so charming. He's so charming. I haven't seen him in so long. I would certainly love to see him again. Um, but it's nice that the movie's been getting some more, um, you know, airing and people are noticing it. It's been a while. <laughs> It had to be a little disappointing for you. This is one of your first starring roles, and the movie does nothing. You know, like, almost doesn't even come out. I mean, yeah. did you kind of have your hopes pinned to this, or were you already to that point where you're, like, always looking for the next gig? What's the next one going to be? I think I really was disappointed at the time. I probably blocked it out by now, so I don't really remember. But I think that I, I, I must have been pretty disappointed because it was so, it was just so darn exciting to be in a movie and to have kind of a nice part in it. Um, but I think that I was doing a lot of theater at the time, and, and the even though I wasn't making a ton of money, I think I was working pretty steadily. So I think as long as you have work and can kind of take your mind off of other aspects of the business. So, yeah, I, it just it was one of those... I, I always thought it might become sort of a cult classic, though, because it just had all the earmarkings for that, you know. But, um, yeah, and I've, been, I've stayed in touch with Zach, and uh, he's he's such a great guy. We're, we're Twitter friends. <laughs> Didn't he introduce the film recently or something when it when it was playing? Yeah, I think at the TCM Fest. That's so cool. Well, what did you think of it? Did you like it? Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. I, absolutely. Oh, cool. It must must have been very natural for you to do the dancing in that film, though. I don't imagine you had done much hula dancing to that point. <laughs> no, but no, that yeah, that part didn't intimidate me at all. It was it was fun being with all those other moon maidens too. I remember because they gave me a dressing room, and that was 
so special and I, everything was everything about it was exciting to me um and uh and I, I remember sharing the dressing room with all the other girls because they only had one <laughs> and um i do remember feeling really nervous and scared about having to audition for Howard Shore who wrote the music and uh they ultimately cast someone else who could actually sing <laughs> to do that part because he he had written it so high and as i said before i i really had never taken singing lessons before and so in a chorus line it's it's more like belted and kind of talk sung so i was able to get away with it and i i have a really loud voice but i don't have a very pretty voice or melodic so I, it didn't, you know, it just it just made me terrified to have to audition for him. So I was kind of relieved when I didn't have to do that. Um, and then they tried to find someone who sounded as much like me as possible. But how is that? Some pretty high notes there. <laughs> Damn straight she did. Yeah. yeah. How how is that doing the whole lip syncing stuff? Was were they just playing it back and you're syncing that way? Yeah, yeah, we did. So she recorded it first, and then I had to lip sync it. And uh, it's so funny because. Decades later, I, I had, you know, my second career going as a voiceover artist, and I, you know, who knew that I was going to be doing that so much where I had to kind of match things up to picture um, or vice versa. And uh, so I don't remember it being that hard because I knew the song, so I was just singing along with it in my own off-key horrible way. <laughs> 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 but... um yeah, I still remember that dress, how uncomfortable that was, and how they tried to pad me up and make me look a little girlier and stuff. <laughs> I was young. Wow, that was... What year did that come out? I want to say 84. 84. Wow. So then that means we probably shot it in 83. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that was around the time that you were in the Doonesbury musical. Yeah, that's right. And that, now it's all coming back to me because I had just gotten married... And just for fun, they put my husband in um, a space helmet, and we took a photo, and then we used that as our Christmas card. I'm just remembering that now. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because I had just gotten married, too, and there was a lot going on at that time. It was very exciting. Well, it only took a few decades for it to come out. (laughs) Right. How did they do those little antennas on your head? Well, they they lit up when I got excited. (laughs) I think it was all... It was attached to a little battery pack in the back of my dress. Gosh, you're just like jogging all these memories that I haven't thought about in ages. <laughs> I don't remember if I worked it or if someone else was working it for me, though. Because I, I think I was just trying to concentrate on the acting. I think someone may have lit it up for me. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like one of those, you know, I'm very happy, so you're like pushing the button faster. That's right. Those little puppies. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mostly you and Zach, though, you got to work with Bill Murray a little bit. How was he on set? You know what? Years later, I worked with him again, and um, I was a little nervous to see him again because back then, obviously, that was my first movie, and I was really a newbie, and I was so terrified. And he, I think at the time, because we talked about it later, he was going through a lot of stuff when we were shooting that. So he just thought it was oodles of fun to just like, tease me mercilessly. <laughs> he just, oh, look at that cute little ingenue. She's such a little ingenue. And I just, I was mortified because I did not want 
any attention from him at all because I was intimidated and just afraid that I wasn't going to do a good job. And I, I was really, he made me quite nervous. And then when I met him years later, he just seemed so much more grounded and sweet. And just, we just laughed about it. And he was totally great. He he just had like a little cameo. I think the movie was um, with friends like these. Gosh, I better Google it and make sure I'm got that right. But but yeah, and and so I was a little bit you know hesitant to see him again after all that time. But he was totally great, and uh, you know we all go through stuff. So I just think he was probably just playing around with me and having fun. But I I just was too scared to to play back. <laughs> <laughs> You but. mentioned a couple times that you are very petite. How tall are you? Five feet. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm really, really yeah. tiny. <laughs> and yet I always get paired with these huge, gigantic people. It's really funny. But then I guess, you know, lots of old-time stars were really tiny, too, and they were men, so <laughs> I think they're used to that. I just, I'm just i on this show now called Supernatural, and for the first time in my career, the producers wrote in the script that I punch a guy in the face. And nothing was made me happier than doing that because I'm so tiny and no one ever asked me to do stunts like that. So it was really fun. <laughs> so you're back alive. The last time I, I watched you, I think you had been possessed. Oh, you and saw died. it. Okay, yeah, I did yeah. three. And then um, the last, where they left it off is that I actually, everyone thought that, I, that Crowley had killed me, that I had died. But actually, I was being chained for a year in captivity. And... It's my son that died. So Well, I'm that, glad that you're back. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was kinda nice to read. Oh good, I'm not dead. Although on that show, like anything goes. You can die and come back three or four times. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when um, did you when did you get into the voice work? Oh gosh, in the nineties. Um King of the Hill was my, my first job and um that was a long job too. That was about I don't know, I think thirteen seasons we went. That was just one of the greatest jobs I've ever had, too. That and Futurama. And I just, um, you know, when you when you get to see people week after week, you really do become a little family. And um, I just auditioned for King of the Hill like I would any other sitcom um, because it was a, a nighttime network show. So they just brought me in, but obviously they weren't filming me. They were just recording me. And um, I got it. And that was just such a great... Um, you know, I got my foothold through that show because once you get into the voiceover, you know, voiceover world, you're kind of in the circle then, and you kind of just get passed around a bit. And you know, <laughs> it was really, really great. And um, Mike Judge, I just love his work, and he was a great guy. And you know, just losing Brittany Murphy, it was just, it was just like a whole, you know, life experience of just going through all of, all of the different marriages and people having kids, you know, and getting divorced. And, you know, we were just kind of, it was interesting. I still quote you from um, King of the Hill, the whole thing about the nutmeg. The nutmeg? Yes. <laughs> I know. Wait, what was the line again? Um, I think it just needs more nutmeg. Oh, more nutmeg, yeah. Yeah. Oh, here, look, at, look at me. Your shoes are like a boat. <laughs> what a little girl! Oh my gosh, that was so fun. I totally just channeled my grandmother for that because <laughs> my grandmother was this like this four foot ten tank. She was just a tank and so hilarious. And because I, I had her voice so well in my body, 
um, I just channeled her. And, and the, but the thing is, is that she had a much lower voice and was a lot more gruff. And they wanted um, Min to be much more kind of passive aggressive. So they wanted her to sound really sweet, but be saying the meanest things. <laughs> so they had to keep like reminding me to to uh, pitch it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then and then for Futurama, I met Matt Groening, and he just we just really hit it off. And he kind of, well, you know, now that I think of it, well, he didn't tell me I had the job right in the room, but. He did say, oh, my gosh, you have an insane laugh. We have to figure out some way to have you in the show. Okay, well, we'll just have you in the show <laughs> or something like that. And they actually switched the part a bit to, to fit me more because he had originally written Amy as um, much more butch. She was a mechanic, and she was just dressed in a mechanic's jumpsuit, and she was just really, really tough wearing boots and everything. And then when I came in, they, they made her a lot girlier, and they you know cut the midriff off. And then they actually, I think, made... Leela tougher to balance ah. out my girliness and then like they, they made me really kind of slutty and stuff. I think I was pretty much paired with every single character in that show at some point, even Bender. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't know. Over, over the years, what have been some of your favorite roles to do? Well, let's see. Okay, so Friends was a great experience. Um, that was also just a gift in my lap. I, I like to tell the story that I, it, it was one of those um, be careful what you wish for experiences because I was watching the show thinking, oh, that guy looks kind of cute. Who is that? Oh, David Schwimmer. Huh, okay. Then I'm, I'm, then I'm um, walking on my treadmill the next day eating a donut at the same time because <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> and um, my phone rings and it's my manager and uh, she says, do you would you like to do um, a seven-episode arc on the show Friends? And I went, wait, what? The guy, the one with David Schwimmer? And he goes, yeah. And, and I said, well, let me think about that. Yes. So it was just like one of those things. I just went to work the next week, and it was just um, really exciting because that was the second season, and it was just when the show started to take off like a skyrocket. And all of those guys really glommed onto each other almost as if, you know, sometimes a, a fast success can feel like a crisis. So they kind of like clung on to each other, like, here we go. And um, I just was so happy to be, you know, along for the ride. And, and people were really sweet to me. It was my birthday, the very first day of rehearsal, and they took me out to lunch and could not have been nicer. So the storyline of, you know, that, that little arc was that they were trying to keep Rachel and Ross apart, right? So I was the other woman. But the joke was is that I was the nicest person on the planet, but Rachel kept seeing me as a bitch because she just was so jealous, right? So that was, that was the running joke throughout those episodes. Cut to, you know, even though I knew the, the entire arc of the storyline that I was going to be dumped after seven episodes, it's still when it happened, I felt like I was being dumped. And I was like, I have to leave? You mean I don't get to come back? And then the National Enquirer had it on the front page, Friends actress gets fired because she's a bitch. Oh. With my picture. And I'm like, no. No, 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 no. That, that's so not true. That was the storyline. You know, I was just mortified. <laughs> they called a lawyer, oh, and the lawyer said, like, don't even just, a, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. It was free publicity, and they're not going to retract it won't be worth you. But anyway, so that was one of my favorites just because 
at the time, there weren't a lot of Asian faces on the screen that were just Asian-American. And so for the community, I thought that was a really great idea that they picked someone of color. And um, um, besides Aisha Taylor, I don't really think they had many other people of color on that show. So I applaud them for doing that. And then um, I'd say the other shows that I've loved have been um, The Joy Luck Club. That was also, I was really proud to be a part of that because it was one of the first movies out there that depicted so many Asian stories and some Asian American and some of them were in China, but, and written by an Asian person. And it just felt like everybody, so many millions of people had read the book and loved the book. And I just felt like we're making this little movie and we're kind of trying to make some art here. And uh, Amy Chan was there every day and it was uh, really a great experience. So I think that was really something I was proud of. And then, um, and then I really, really loved Supernatural too because that was like a, it's a more recent job. But it's it just I know it's kind of sci-fi and it's the horror genre, which is really not my thing. But for me as an actress, it had so much depth to it, and I felt like I had to use almost every experience I've had in my career up to date, in the sense that the show has humor, so I've done tons of sitcoms. Right, the show has some really bizarre things happening in it. So, because I did so much avant-garde theater in my early career, nothing really fazed me. They were like, "Okay, so now you have red smoke coming out of your eyes, and you know they turn red." Okay, that's fine, you know. And, and so, nothing threw me in that way. And then the dance background, I was comfortable doing all my own stunts. So, punching the guy and running in heels, and you know, <laughs> had to stab someone. I mean. It was just, it just has so much in it. And, and, um, and then the drama, I was doing Greek tragedies when I was, you know, in my acting uh, theater days in New York. And it just was really a fun combination of all of those things. So I got to be funny on one line and then sobbing on the next line. It's kind of cool. Fun. And then plus that, the fandom on that show is insane. I've never experienced anything like it. And I'm having such so much fun on Twitter because the the fandom really embraces the actors and so basically they send so much love by saying well what do you care about we care about what you care about so I'm always fundraising for my favorite um, non nonprofit organization and they've they've helped me I can't even I'd say we've raised probably like twenty five thousand dollars in the last couple of years just from people being so sweet and supporting the campaigns that I've been putting out, you know, 5K Run, and I hold these little breakfast raffles for breakfast with me. <laughs> and, and, you know, people put in $20 for a, a chance, and then we just pick randomly a winner, stuff like that. It's just been really, really fun. And so That sounds so nice. Yeah, it's been great. And it's, it what also makes me feel, you know, kind of relevant still to be connected to younger people. <laughs> <laughs> who really love this because I think the average age although no I guess there's some older people who like that show too but um, you know I'm, as as an Asian woman who's five feet tall and you know way over 40 years old it's it's just hard to kind of feel like you can keep the train going and feel relevant and all those things so this fandom has really kind of lifted me up a bit in that way what are some of your pet causes well, it's um, 
Homeboy Industries is really the main one that I'm always um, fundraising for, and, and it's this. Um, it's the largest gang intervention program in, in the United States. And, and in the 80s, we had a really bad uh, gang problem here. And um, this man who's a Jesuit priest, Father Greg Boyle, he pretty much single-handedly fixed that problem here. This program is like 18-month training program for men and women who have been formerly incarcerated. So it's really hard to get a job when you have a record. So what he does is he goes to the different prisons and hands out his card and says, when you're ready and you get out of here and you decided that you don't want this life anymore, I will give you a job. So this organization provides an unbelievable uh, uh, support as far as they offer tattoo removal, anger management classes, um, drug rehab, uh, parenting classes, you can get your GED, um, you know, and basically they give you a job at the bakery, it's a homeboy industries bakery, and um, the reason that they that they cost so much money to run, 13 million bucks a year, is because they they actually pay each person a salary, and because the, the motto is is that nothing stops a bullet like a job, that once you have a job, it can start building your self-esteem so that it just keeps rolling forward and you can get your life back on track. So they have a 70% success rate and a 30% recidivism rate. Whereas the government, their their system in prison has a 70% failure rate, <laughs> so the numbers are exactly opposite. So they're really just doing such an amazing job. It's 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 so touching. I can't even describe what it's like to be there because their headquarters are here in LA, and just being in there, being there, you can just feel all the hope and the energy and the people bustling around having a job, serving people, because they have a restaurant and a cafe there and a, and a bakery. And then they do all these other services too, like they, they do silk screening for T-shirts. And so anyway, I, I won't bore you, but it, it really is something that completely, it makes me, I'm so passionate about it. It's, it's really touching to see someone get a second chance in life. And I feel like we all make mistakes. And so I think everyone deserves a second chance, you know. Definitely. Yeah. Do you have time for one more question? Yeah, I'm sorry I blathered on so long about that. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Okay. It, it, I wouldn't have asked if I didn't want to know. Okay, good. You had talked about, you know, how the Joy Luck Club really kind of opened a lot of doors and really kind of, you know, put an Asian face out there. And um, have you ever been uh, up for or considered for a role that once you kind of dug into it a little bit more, you didn't feel comfortable with as far as like negative portrayals, negative stereotypes of Asians? You know, I've really thought about that question a lot throughout my career because I'd say that it's about 50-50 split um, between roles I've done that have been just American, no accent, and then the other half, which is quite large in in a sense because there's some actors out there who just refuse to ever play a part that has an accent. And I just don't feel that way because there are so many people in the world that have accents. And and so I just feel like because my grandmother spoke in that way, she came here from China, I think as long as you can bring as much truth as possible to the role, then I think that even the Asian community supports it. It's just the problem is is when the writing is such that it has nothing to do with anything close to the truth. So there have been times, in sitcoms especially, because they're just going for a fast, quick, sometimes cheap joke, 
I've had to say, you know what, I, I just can't say this. I, I can't. And, and what I found is that most writers really wanted to work with people on it. They don't want to be a jerk. They don't want to come across as completely ignorant, you know, and, but you just have to say something. So my point was always, let me get in there and do the job and see if I can work with it instead of just saying I refuse to do that because someone will. And, and um, you also, as an actor, need to, to keep working on your craft and get experience. So I, I wanted to have a career and see what I could do. So that's kind of my response to it. Like I, I know it's legitimate for people to feel like it's, it's moving the whole community backwards by doing um, a part with an accent. I do understand that because it's not balanced enough. There aren't, you know, there aren't as many, you know, portrayals out there that are American. Let's say that that's true. But I also think that, you know, if, like I said, if if it if it has some truth in it, it's going to be okay. I mean, it, it's so, it's sort of like with humor too. Because Richard Pryor used to say the meanest things about the black community, but he got away with it because it was funny. And and it had some truth to it. So I think that people they, they just spontaneously laugh if if they if it has some truth to it. I mean I'm talking just about within the own you know, the community. Um so that's the way that I look at it. And if it offends you that much you can just turn the channel. <laughs> I mean that's what that's how I've you know I've I've taken some grief about it. So has Margaret Cho and, you know, other people, but you just do what you what what you feel is within your sense of integrity. And you can't say to someone like, hey, you're out of your integrity if that person isn't. So <laughs> everyone has their own sense. So, yeah. But I, hopefully I've balanced it out enough to where I've moved it forward as well. You know, like with roles like like um, Friends or The Joyless Club or, or even uh, Mrs. Tran. Like, she's pretty badass. I mean, you know, like, I like playing strong, tough, smart characters. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I guess there's always the danger of it, the pendulum going too far the other way, where everything is just colorblind, and it you could be replaced by any actress or replace any actress, and there's just nothing there. It just would be bland. That's a so. really good point. And, and also just, you know, you don't want to be so PC that it becomes bland and n- nothing. Like, you're not making any statement. So, I mean... I wrote a one-person show years ago for HBO that was based on my grandmother's journey uh, from how she got to the United States from China. And I basically just transcribed what she said. I recorded her telling her story, and then I transcribed it. And she had a really thick accent. So when I was playing her in my play, I had a thick accent. And I had so many Asian people come see the show that were like, that is my grandmother. You had my grandmother up there on stage. So that's what made me feel, you know, more fortified in saying it's, it's going to be okay if, if there's some truth in it, you know, because so, then you can recognize yourself up there. When it comes to, you know, you are a uh, uh, Chinese-American actress. Yeah. Do you ever find it weird when you're playing like a Japanese person or uh, Thai or any kind of, you know, is there uh, a difference when it comes to, obviously there's a difference, but when you're being asked to play a Japanese person, do you ever be like, yeah, that's not really me, but oh, okay, I so can funny. do it. The, the cultures really are different for sure. 
and it, it is kind of true. We all do look alike. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, um, <laughs> I mean, film is such a film is such a visual medium that that it, it, it I I can understand why they're okay with casting someone Chinese that's actually Japanese, you know, because most people can't really tell the difference unless, I mean, I have a hard time sometimes. Like, there are certain features that I can tell sometimes with Korean people, but I, anyway, I, I, for me, when I'm playing someone Japanese or a different, um, or Vietnamese or something like that, I just really work on getting um, that, speech rhythm correct and if they have an accent like a Japanese accent is completely different than a Chinese Cantonese one the only time I apparently did not do very well at all was I was in a movie called When a Man Loves a Woman and I was supposed to be Vietnamese that is such a hard language and I had a speech I mean most of the whole movie I'm just speaking as I speak you know Americanese (laughs) and but then there's one um, scene with when Andy Car- Garcia comes to um, this Vietnamese restaurant that I'm at with my entire family, and, and they cast my family with all Vietnamese extras. And I worked for two weeks on this little speech, just like two sentences, I think it was, that I had to say to my family in Vietnamese so that Andy Garcia couldn't understand what I was saying. And then when, um, when we were rehearsing, <laughs> they were like, what are you saying? <laughs> Uh, are you speaking Vietnamese? And I was like, yes! Wait, it doesn't sound anything like it should. And they said, it sounds just like Cantonese. You sound like you're speaking Cantonese. And we can't understand a word you're saying. And I was like, oh, I was so disappointed. So anybody who was watching that movie that's Vietnamese, my apologies. <laughs> I guess I really butchered it up. That's a hard language, though. Oh, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but and then culturally too, sometimes you know it depends like what generation we're talking about. You know those those uh, like, like if it was a hundred years ago in Japan, you know just just the movements, the way that a person moves is going to be much different than an Asian person in the year two thousand and twelve or something. You know, they it's just much more restricted and slow and small and all those things. I, I tried to look for too. But having said that, I never really got those parts that were. The Last Emperor and all those authentic Chinese parts. I just felt like such an imposter. I'm this girl from Highland Park, Illinois, who grew up with all Jewish people. So I have no, I had to learn how to be Asian. I, honestly, I thought I was a white Jewish girl, just like everybody else. That's funny. I have a friend who, uh, a Jewish friend of mine who lives in Highland Park. So. Oh, yep. really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I knew the whole Baruch, Atad, and Oil, and I, because I went to so many bar mitzvahs. But if I didn't see my grandmother, you know, once a week, I wouldn't, I would really not, you know, have much of my Asian culture with me at all. Yeah, it's so much of what you're exposed to, especially when you're young. Well, my parents really wanted to us to be completely Americanized, and so they, they purposely moved us out to a place where there weren't any Asian people, so that we would speak only English, and, and you know, I don't know. It was weird to be the only Asian family in the whole town. What are you working on these days? Oh, I'm just doing my voiceovers. I do um, Teen Titans and, you know, some um, Turbo. I do I do these cartoons, which my kids, you know, love that I do those. And um, I have a movie coming out called Grandma where I play. It's with um, Lily Tomlin, who is such an icon. Oh, my gosh. 
she's one of the nicest people on the planet. And um, I told her when I was little that she she always made me feel more um, secure in myself because we had the same initials. <laughs> ah, that's so nice. And there's, you know, the rest of the shoot, we were trying to come up with other famous people with those initials. Lawrence Taylor, um, <laughs> Lana Turner. Anyway, um, but no, I just play her doctor, and it was um, written and directed by Paul Weitz, you know, the guy that did About a Boy and American Pie and all that. So I think it's opening the L.A. Film Festival here or something. But that was fun. So, yeah, I'm just kind of like raising my kids and working when I can. I'm going to work on um, a National Ge- Geographic uh it sounds really funny, but it's like a now you know sort of sitcom for National Geographic that the creators, um, John Ultula, who ran King of the Hill, has, has just asked me to be a part of. So we start shooting that next week. Um, I don't really know exactly what it is. It's going to be a mixture of comedy and National Geographic. And I'm, I just told him I'll show up because he has like a bunch of parts he wants me to do. So it's almost like an ensemble kind of thing. Well, I don't know. We'll see. Sounds like fun, though. It's always fun to work with your friends, too. Here's an interview with production assistant Layla Nabulsi. My name is Layla Nabulsi, and I'm a producer. When did you first meet Tom Schiller? I met Tom Schiller at Saturday Night Live. And when the show first started, 1975, 76, or whatever, and um, uh, Tom is a wonderful, fantastic, incredibly creative person, and so and very fun and fun to hang out with, and we got along really great. And then um, he made a short film. He he wanted to make a short film with John Belushi, and I was very, I was you know best friends with John and Judy, his wife, and. John decided that I should, you know, do something with myself and work, which was great. And so I, he kind of handed me over to Schiller, and um, Schiller became my boss. And we made a lot of short films together, and he taught me everything I know about filmmaking. And um, we did these little films for no money. We ran around the city, and we made he made up things. And we had a we we ended up having a little cast of kind of actors we worked with besides the original cast, you know, our own little cast. And it was uh, it was just so much fun. I can't tell you. And and very Tom is a pure filmmaker through and through. I mean, he 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 just came with all that. He'd been doing little films all his life, and so. Um, he just was really fun to work with, so I learned a lot, too. Up until that point when you met him, what were you working on? What were you doing? Well, I, I had been, um, I, I don't know, I, was in, I went to the, uh, I graduated from the UN school, baccalaureate in English. I took a year off. I traveled around Europe. I had a daycare center. I, I was studying art in Paris, and then I came back and I I was I studied uh, with Bill Hickey at the Herbert Berghoff studio I studied acting for a year but I was friends with all the lampoon the national lampoon crowd there was a you know from the radio hour through Chris Guest and the radio hour uh, Alyssa Guest was my best friend in high school and her brother was obviously Chris Guest and so I met all those people and I was hanging out at the radio hour and just, I don't know, I was very drawn to comedy and, and, and hanging out with those people. And, and, um, and I became friends with Belushi. And, but then what happened was the, uh, when Saturday Night 
live happened, a lot of that group that was already a group in New York and hanging out together sort of moved over to the show. But Schiller came from L.A. and from, you know, he, he came into that group. You know that we we made a new group, but he was part of the new people we were meeting, and then everybody sort of just blended together. So, so I wasn't really doing anything per se, except I didn't know what I was doing. I was one of the youngest people around the show, and so whenever anybody sort of gave me a job, I kind of you know was like, oh, okay, I'll do this. And um, I never set out to be a filmmaker. I never set out to be uh, anything. I just loved. Um, you know, art, and I loved uh, the performing, and I loved watching, you know, being around all that, and um, I wanted to work. I had a, you know, I wanted to do something. I didn't just want to hang out, so um, it was kind of my college education, really, because I got to do a lot of stuff. You know, that was the thing about making the short films. You know, you're doing them, and you're having fun, and you're learning, and you're just doing them, but then you do have an audience, and it's on television, so it's kind of um, you know, it has to work. It has to be funny, and um, so it is pretty fast education. You know, in late night comedy, <laughs> that's all I, I really know. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the timeline for those must have been pretty quick to do the turnaround on them. Oh yeah, we used to do them pretty fast. I mean, sometimes Tom would think of an idea, and we'd have a camera, or he'd have the camera, or we'd have a camera person with us. And we'd just think of an idea, or he'd come up with one of his ideas, like, I remember P- Picasso, the New York years. And, you know, Picasso was never in New York. And we just ran around New York, and he interviewed people, like, at Cat's Deli, or, you know, what did Picasso like to eat here? You know? <laughs> and, and he just made, like, a fake documentary out of it. It was just really funny, you know. And we did that in one day. We shot that in one day. And, you know, Tom spent more time editing and putting music to it, and he was very... But he always knew what he was doing and what he liked to do. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean what he liked to do. I mean, he always knew how, what he was doing with it. He never, I never saw him sort of falter like, what should I do here? What should I do there? You know, he kind of had his way of doing it and he would, he would work pretty fast, I would say. Yeah. Seeing some of those sheets of how much stuff cost and all that. I mean, it seems like you guys were really stretching a budget in the in these short films. Well, we didn't have a budget. We had, you know, I, I don't know, I think $2,000 or... <laughs> we were like a gorilla, a gorilla team, you know. We'd run around New York, and sometimes just Tom would have the camera and the sound thing, or, you know, we'd have a cameraman once in a while, and or camera woman, and, um, you know, we'd just run around, and we'd, we'd get people to sign releases. Sometimes we would, sometimes we wouldn't. I mean, we got... You know, sometimes we like when we did the Belushi in the the cemetery. I remember like we didn't tell them that John was going to dance on a bunch of graves. You know, we just said we were shooting something in the cemetery. <laughs> you know, kind of fudged it, and um, that happened a lot. But then there were then there were ones that were a little more of productions. Like when we did the um, the one with uh, well, first one that comes to mind that was a big production for us was the uh, Gilda one. You know, adult, um, La Dolce Gilda, because we we took over uh, one fifth was where we had the party after the show. So we did it at at the party after the show, and we told everyone we were going to make this film at the party, and we got them dressed, and they all went for it, and they so the party was already going on, but we had all this other stuff going on. We just caught them, and Tom was living in my mom's place at the Muse at the time. She'd gone away for a year, and Tom was 
had rented the place, and so that was right around the corner. So that was our kind of production house, you know. Like we had the clothes there and stuff, so we run back and forth. And then we ended it with Gilda at the West Side Highway at dawn that night. So we did the show, did the, did, you know, shot all that night, and then ended at dawn. That's when that's when you're young and have a lot of energy, you know, and you're. And you're lucky because you have a lot of actors at your at your at, you know that are right there that just want to have fun and do it with you, you know. And everybody loved Tom's movies, so. I was going to ask: Was everybody pretty into the idea of working with him? Oh yeah! Oh gosh, yes, everybody was. We did one with Bill Murray. You know, we we tried to use everybody, um, and uh, we did that Java Junkie. That Java Junkie was also a way more elaborate production for us. You know, we had set. We had a couple of... That took more than a day. <laughs> so... Yeah, that one... It, it, I mean, all these short films just still stand up, which is it, oh, it's so remarkable to me. But yeah. then Tom would go off in between the show when we'd have off, and he might go traveling with people. Or wherever he went, he'd take his camera, and he'd make little movies on his own, just just with his voices and, you know, finding a couple of funny characters or making up a story, like he did one in Rome. And he would always come back from his travels, and he'd have a new movie, you know, um, that he just made up. Uh, he would just... He was always doing that. He was, And then ta- there were times when he would have these... Remember, he had lots of lists of ideas, you know, just lists and lists of funny ideas. He was, uh, he was, um, he's really, you know, I don't say this lightly, but he's pretty much of a creative genius, I would say. He just is a fountain of funny ideas. So you got short timelines, no budget. At least you got a, you know, a very good cast. Was it there tough times on this? I mean, did you and he get along all the time? Oh yeah, yeah. We got along all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I it was, you know, he's very collaborative, but at the same time, it's definitely Schiller vision. So you know, that that's okay, and I was okay with that because I was pretty much in service and in awe of the of the fun and the talent, and we had a lot of laughs. I mean, Thomas is a riot. So, um, you know, the the working part the mo- working part was really fun. You know, he's really fun to work for and work with um, because he's, you know, some people are, have a, you know, they get anxious or stressed and they get, you know, short-tempered and he he just, I don't, I never really felt that from him or saw that because he kind of always knew what he was doing and it was kind of a flow, you know, and it was fun and because the, the stuff was funny, you'd you'd have a laugh while you were doing it, but he was also very focused and he knew what he was doing. So there was never, and since we had the freedom at the show to kind of do his own vision, you know, that's what his Schiller vision, you know, nobody was saying you can't do that or we don't like that or take that out or, you know, or why don't you change that? It wasn't like making movies for, you know, Hollywood or something. It was, it was really like you were, you were left alone to go, make your movie, make your little piece. We love it and it's going to be funny and it is your complete vision. So when you have that kind of freedom and that kind of um, support, I think the process is a, is, is a lot easier. You're not dealing with all of that, will they like it, do they want me, do I have to change it, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know. Sounds like you might have gotten a little spoiled doing this. Well, yeah. I mean, 
you know, <laughs> life isn't like that outside of <laughs> outside of that kind of bubble, you know. Especially in filmmaking in Hollywood or whatever, but so nothing lasts forever comes about. It was probably pretty natural that you're going to be working on this too. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to. I mean, I was, um, I, you know, it was after we'd kind of left the show. Well, Tom was still working at the show, I guess. I guess I wasn't really working at the show, but, um, and I had moved. Well, no, was it? Oh, yeah, I guess I was living with Hunter, but. Anyway, John Belushi had just died. So it was kind of a weird, the whole thing was weird because John was supposed to be in the movie and I really did want to work on the movie and so I did work on the movie for, I didn't finish the movie, which I regret because I I was so young, I didn't really understand. I thought, you know, I was so upset about John's passing and, and it was, I don't know, you know, so at a certain point I couldn't really cope much more with it. But, we went through all the casting process, and I would say half of the movie. And um, the casting was really fun. And uh, we went through a lot of people to find the Zach Galligan guy. I mean, or to find Zach Galligan, I should say. Yeah, what kind of folks were you looking at? Well, it was funny because I look back on it now, and we, we auditioned all these people. And they're, you know, Matthew Broderick. You know, Sam Robards, who was, you know, Jason Robards' son. Um, what was his name? That other guy. Um, oh, God, his name just went right out of my head. Anyway, there were a lot of guys that ended up being actors in the world, you know, that we sort of were, were still kind of just young and coming up, you know. And um, and and Zach Allegan was there. But, you know, I think the reason that Tom likes Zach Galligan, it kind of reminded him of him. You know, Zach was a real cinephile. Like, he could quote names of credits of weird movies. Like, I can't do that, but, you know. And so he was a, he was kind of had that same kind of brain that Schiller had about movies and stuff, you know. And I think Tom saw a little bit of himself in Zach, you know. When you look at that character that Zach ended up playing, Adam Beckett, do you see a lot of Tom and him? Well, I think Tom, it was based on an idea of Tom. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Tom would say he wrote it about himself particularly, but I think it was supposed to be a Tom type of, well, I, not really Tom, no. But just, well, that's, that's a hard question, actually. Um, no, I don't think it's really Tom, although it is all the dialogue and everything is so Tom, it's hard to separate it, if you know what I'm saying. Right, right. I was curious, tell me more about some of the casting stuff. I mean, when you guys did the short films and then doing the feature, I mean, it feels very Fellini-esque as far as some of the interesting faces that you get on screen. Yes, that was always one of our things, is like choosing, you know, we, we really were into casting of choosing people. And like I said, for the short films, we had a we had our own little kind of group of like unknown actors that we'd sort of picked up along the way. And um and then when we were casting for Nothing Lasts Forever, again, you know, Tom and I had a pretty good collaboration. I understood what he would be looking for. We understood each other and so we would see somebody and we go, "Oh yeah, that's a per- oh, we've laughed." Like, you know, like the um something about them would make us laugh, like like the stewardess on the on the bus to the moon, you know, for some reason, whenever she would open her mouth, we'd just crack up, you know what I mean? I don't know why, but, you know, 
And so it was kind of like that, more instinctual. And then you'd sort of try to see if they could actually pull it off or if they were just bad, you know, and then, you know, whatever. And But, like, for instance, the part that Belushi was supposed to play, that so that was a problem for us because, you know, we had John was supposed to be the Paul Rogers part, the, the bum that he meets that takes him to the Sam Jaffe, you know. And so that guy was like, we didn't have that guy. And uh, Tom said, you know, there's this actor who's in this play, The Dresser, on Broadway. He said, we should go check him out, Paul Rogers. I think he'd be good for that guy. I said, okay. I said, oh, so we're going to go to the play? He goes, no, we're going to sneak in in the intermission, you know. And <laughs> and then we're going to look at the guy, and then we're going to see if we like him. I'm like, okay. So we snuck in in the intermission. We watched the guy. We were like, yeah, that guy's great. And then he got him, and that was it. So he played the part. <laughs> How long were you on the shoot? I can't remember, but I was there, I would say, more than halfway through. Um, yeah. And then we had a party before we started, which I'll never forget. Tom had a pre-party at the plaza. Was it a trader? Was there a trader fixer then? I don't know, but it was at the plaza. And he had hired a little midget guy, black midget guy, who got up to give an address to everyone before the film started. (laughs) And the guy kept saying, this flim, this flim, you know. (laughs) And then he said something like, nothing lasts forever, not even your job. (laughs) And that became one of our catchphrases on the movie. Nothing lasts forever, not even your job. And then I was like around for some of the editing. And I just, you know, it's funny. The movie was on TV the other day, or, you know, a couple months ago. And I watched it. I hadn't really watched it on TV. And unfortunately, they cut out the art testing scene, which I I don't know why, because I guess she's naked. It was weird. But anyway, um, and I realized that I knew every line by heart. Every single line I knew by heart. And because, you know, we used to repeat lines a lot, too. It's in the writing thing. And, you know, I worked a little bit with Tom on the script with John Head, you know, just our usual thing, just improving back and forth. And Tom would write stuff up. And we just, you know, he had a very, he was just so funny and so good that it wasn't really much, you know, to do except kind of do it with him a little bit. But we would just laugh at lines, you know, over and over again. And I realized I know every single line of that movie by heart. So weird. There's one old lady in that tram scene that I just absolutely love. She's the one who really doesn't have a grasp of the acting very well. Yeah. Yeah. But she goes, it's, it's, yeah, I know she says, I forget what she says now that I said, I know every line, but she says something, she says something like, yeah, when they get on the moon, right? She's kind of a little old lady. Yeah, I know which one you mean. I just remember her like, no, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, that was the thing. Tom was sort of, he didn't mind people who didn't act. Like even, like when we did, you know, we would kind of laugh at real people who were doing stuff. Like when we did like Picasso, the New York years, I remember the guy at the Cat's Deli. Picasso used to order veal. He'd order veal here, you know, or whatever. And he'd just be this guy, and he wasn't acting, you know. It was just kind of, he was bad acting, if anything, you know. Um, But it always worked in the context of Tom's, whatever he was doing. 
In fact, you know, now that you bring it up, he did use a lot of people that weren't actors in his stuff a lot, you know? Yeah, I was... Uh, well, yeah, the one short that you guys did, the... I can't remember the name of the guy, but the uh, director who had never... Oh, God, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, Palmer. Lyndon Palmer. <laughs> that guy was some guy. He wasn't an actor, and... You know, Tom managed to make such a drama around him, you know, Lyndon Palmer, you know. And then he did that He did that thing where, which he was so good at, which was mixing old, um, you know, uh, footage of old reels and stuff. He was, Tom was brilliant at that, like, you know, finding them, knowing them, putting them in, all of that, you know. Stock footage, he was a master at stock footage. Yeah, and that was something that I love about Nothing Lasts Forever is just how well integrated that stuff is. Yeah, he's really good at that in music too. He was really, he actually he's just such a he's really just such a unique and fantastic filmmaker. I mean, there really isn't anyone who has Schiller vision like his vision, really. And I, you know, I just um, I feel so grateful that I that I got to learn about filmmaking from him because. He had so many creative and interesting ways to do things without spending money, you know. Um, you know, all you see all these movies now are so overblown and they don't have half the the fun or the interest or the and you know, when I watched Nothing Lasts Forever the other couple months ago, I thought, This is this isn't dated either. It's like it feels weird and new and different and interesting and kind of, you know, original as it did then. It doesn't feel like, oh, well, this has been done a lot since then, or, you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like that at all. No, it still is a very, I hate to say very unique because it's such a horrible phrase, but it is a very unique film. Yeah, and and I haven't seen anything like it since, and, you know, I guess that's my, I wish Tom would do more movies or, you know, do another movie or something, but... There it is. I talked a little bit to Tom about the whole idea of the film really not getting its day, never getting the proper release, the support, any of this kind of stuff. And of course, he's very like, oh, well, certain things are meant to be, all this kind of stuff. He doesn't seem to be mad about it whatsoever. How about you? What were your feelings at oh, the time? Oh, I was, oh, we were mad about it then. I mean, you know, one, one, <laughs> oh, I was. I well, I'll speak for myself, you know. Spitting tax. I was so mad and so upset. Really hurt too. Really upset. I mean, when you're young and you're creative and you've had so much freedom in doing your vision and everything and with Tom, he certainly and we certainly had that experience. I think naively maybe, I don't know, but we sort of felt that that was going to carry on that okay, so we made the movie and and I remember when it was, you know, because I was, I sort of came back for the, the end of it, you know, the, 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 the finishing of it. So there was a period where I went away, I came back. But, and so I remember very well that all going down, the editing. I remember a lot of the editing, then all going down of like the first screening and people not understanding it, not supporting it. You know, you know, we had never made a feature film. Lauren Michaels had never produced a feature film. There was a whole thing at MGM going on. You know, there's always is like that. Somebody, you know, heads changed or I don't even know why it happened the way it happened. I I really don't understand it. But what I will say is that I feel Tom was wrongly 
maligned in that moment of they misunderstood and they misunderstood him and they didn't get how great the movie was and they didn't get uh they didn't get it and we were so i think shocked that we didn't have that support and freedom like we did on the show it didn't it never occurred to us you know that it wouldn't be released or that they wouldn't get it or we couldn't fix it to their, you know, whatever. It just didn't ever occur to us. So when that happened, it was like, what? It's like, and so it was as opposed to now when you might go, oh, that's, that's the movie business or that's Hollywood or that's, you know, well, we get jaded, you get more, you know, your heart's been broken a few more times. You go, oh yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. Or, you know, but, or as Michael O'Donohue used to say, you know, they kill you with a thousand cuts. You know, it's not one blow to the head. But at that point, it felt like one blow to the head, you know. And it was like, or the heart, I should say, felt it was really horrible. And I felt terrible about it. And I know, you know, at the time, it was it was very, you know, devastating. Because you work hard on something and you want it to be out there and... You hope that everyone likes it, and you and you hope that and you would think you would sort of assume that you would do more, you know. And he should have. He really should have. He should have. I mean, well, should have. Whatever. I mean, but truthfully, if you look at filmmakers of the day and that time and and moving forward, Tom was as good, if not better, than a lot of them. And he he should have had his day, and he should have gone on to do other movies. And every actor in the world would love to work with him. You know, he's. Uh, you know, he he's he is a, a little bit of a talent magnet that way. People love to work with him. You know, so I don't know. It's a shame. I keep telling him he should just do another one. You know, um, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he will. So, and he seems to be okay with that. I really don't know. But so it's about that whole death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. Was this a typical movie as far as, like, were there people kind of breathing down your guys' neck or giving notes and these kind of things? Or was this kind Not of really. still that isolated, you know, Not SNL really because thing? It, Yeah, it was because, well, Bodie Boatwright was our executive um, on the movie, and she was great, and she was very, she was trying very hard to kind of corral us into a real movie-making team that was more, I think, you know, she was she came from that world, you know, and um she knew more about that. I mean, none of us really had done a feature film. You know, see here's the problem. With all of us Saturday Night Live people, we never did things the way everyone else did it. We did it our way because that's the way we did it. And we had had so much freedom to kind of do our own thing. It's like when I you know, as the president, quote unquote, of the Blues Brothers and we put together the band and did the first album and suddenly we're sitting on top of a double platinum album in the music business we weren't in the music business you know we were just in the show business i mean we just decided we wanted to you know john loved the blues and we wanted to have a band and then somebody wanted us to do a record and then we kind of taped it live and we did it and but we did it sort of our way we weren't like kind of music business people you know and then suddenly we were supposed to be music business people and then you get into a whole other problem you know and I think it was the same here. It was like, well, Tom just was going to make his movie. Like, he had made his little movies. He was going to make a bigger movie. And we kind of had a lot of freedom, even in the beginning, because Lorne, because Lorne was the producer. People just assumed that we were under his auspices. He was supposed to be 
steering the ship or something. Or, and basically his way of steering the ship was to let Tom do his thing, which you would. I mean, that would be the smart thing to do, and that's kind of what Lauren was doing. And then Bodie was trying to keep us on track and keep the budget and, you know, and I think all of that was fine in making the movie. You know, that was fine. Nobody was telling us not to make the movie or not to do it, do what we were doing. It was afterwards to, to, to get the movie out there and, you know, they wanted to re-edit or do this or that and we didn't, we weren't happy about that because they didn't really know what they were doing, if you ask me, number one. Number two, it didn't make it any different and we still, we were back to our original edit anyway and then it was like, so now you're not going to put it out or you don't know what to do with it and they, it had Bill Murray in it and and uh, Dan Aykroyd and I don't know, I, I, I don't know why. I really don't kind of understand really what happened. Um, you'd have to ask Bodie Boatwright, I guess, or somebody. Bodie Bo- Boatwright has to be one of the best names ever. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I really thought that it was a fake name. No, I know. And that she's from the South is so cool, too, because she's like, ha, Bodie Boatwright, you know. <laughs> And she was great. She she was a part of our whole Saturday Night Live. She gave great parties. She loved all of us. You know, she was like a cool kind of person from another slice of life. I mean, from the movie business. She was really, in, and she was an agent, and you know, she, I mean, a, and a producer person. And she, at the time, she was she was on the movie, sort of trying to for from GM, I guess. I don't know what she, you know. Um, and she became a big agent at ICM at one point. But, you know, she was around and she knew a lot of filmmakers. In fact, she was responsible for kind of integrating or introducing all of us Saturday Night Live people to all these other people that were the kind of film people, you know. How did that go over? Oh, great. We had some shit great parties at her house, you know, wonderful parties where she'd mix it up, you know, mix us all up together. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. You're off. Nothing lasts forever. You go on to do um, your production assistant on Pritzi's Honor. What's that experience like for you working on this quote-unquote real Hollywood production versus what you had just experienced all these years working with Tom Schiller? Well, I was a kind of an associate. Well, the thing was, I worked for John Foreman. Well, what happened was it came from Bodie Boatwright. And what happened was, and I, I was friends with Angelica and Jack. I knew them from Aspen. So, so Bodie, John Foreman said to Bodie, I need somebody in New York to uh, help out. And I had just moved back there. And I need somebody to help me, help me on this movie. And, um, and she said, oh, I know the person. Because she knew me from, hey, nothing lasts forever and we were still friends. She goes, you should hire Layla. And she's friends with Angelica and Jack anyway. And and blah, blah, blah. So I met John Foreman, and that was a big love affair. He was like, he was, I call him my mentor as a producer. He was the most fabulous producer ever, just old old school and very classy, and um, taught me a lot. I learned a lot. And so, but it was kind of a family thing. Again, there was more of a family feeling because I knew Angelica, I knew Jack, I, and we and we I knew some of the Italian guys. You know, we we brought in Tommy Barada from Mary Lou's, and he was cooking for us, and we knew him already. And so there was a kind of a familiar, and and then Angelica had her dad, you know, John Houston, all of that. So and John and 
John Foreman had worked together many times. So there was a kind of a familiarity kind of family thing. And we had a, we had the best time. I mean, it was a great, great experience. It was a bit of a love fest. It's one of those things that you don't, that doesn't happen. And in fact, I, I wouldn't say that it's a typical Hollywood movie at all. I mean, or, or a Hollywood experience because a, it was in New York. Mostly we did go back out to LA, which I had, I didn't know LA at all. So I was really at sea. I had to be, people had to draw maps for me all the time, but but it was so fun, and I, I learned a lot. And I, as I said, John Foreman really became much more of a mentor, in the sense of a real producer. Um, and uh, I, 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 I kind of also I realized that I had certain strengths, like I was good at casting. I mean, some of that, you know, I think was developed with Tom, and um, I just. You know, I I knew some. I obviously I knew some stuff, but this was a real a real movie, you know, kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it was great, great experience. You talked a little bit about rewatching Nothing Lasts Forever, remembering all the dialogue and all that. What was that experience like for you, kind of revisiting this after all these years? You know, I was so happy that it wasn't dated. It was funny that um, I enjoyed it, you know, because it was almost, it wasn't like seeing it for the first time because I realized I knew every frame of the movie. Like, you know, I I knew every single frame. I must have watched them, you know, with Tom a million times or something, or I don't know, in the dialogue, you know. And so I knew everything, but it's that thing when you haven't seen something for a long, long time and you're kind of re-watching it on TV as if it's coming on, you know. So I thought, wow, if it it's really just as funny, just as great, just as quirky, just as kind of interesting as it was then. And I'm enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. And and I was very also happy that it was being seen. And I had some friends who were texting me. They were watching it. I had t- sent out, you know, some emails and texts to people to watch it. And during it, I kept getting these funny texts from people like, this is great, you know, <laughs> like, and people who'd never seen it, you know, so that's really exciting, you know, when you, when somebody experiences it for the first time and you're, you're getting that validation, as it were, that it still is great, you know, and I think that, I think that was the most kind of exciting thing it was like, wow, it holds up, you know, because you never know. Sometimes things, you watch them again, you go, oh. You know, I don't know. That's not so great. Or it's kind of boring. Or, oh, we shouldn't have done that, you know. <laughs> but with this, it just made me laugh. And I was like, this is great. It's just as great. It's just as funny today or, you know, as it was. And just as interesting to me and didn't lag. There was no, you know what I mean? There was no parts where I went, oh, I don't know, you know. Yeah, it moves along so quickly. It just cooks, you know, what is it, 80 minutes long? It just moves, moves, moves. Yeah, that's pretty funny. So, no, yeah, so, you know, and then it's fun to see all those little things you remember, you know, like, I don't know, just little dumb things that you think. I like the lunar teeny, you know, those, like, in the lunar teenies, those flashing balls of those uh, those olives that were flashing balls. <laughs> it's like... I just remember, you know, it's like you remember little things like, you know, thinking, you know, making them or thinking about them or Tom being specific about things, you know. And in the end, 
I that that was a little bit my idea at the end of like um you know when she comes in the carriage and everything and she sits up in the thing of, of like uh Les, en- uh Les Enfants de Paradis you know that movie uh, and Garance comes to the theater, you know, and, and there's that whole thing. So that was a little bit, that I was a big fan of that movie, and I think we discussed that, and I thought it would be great, you know, so that was a little bit of that in there. And he had another great little cameo appearance there with um, uh, Lawrence Tierney as the cab driver. I was very surprised to see that. Yeah, yeah. And Sam Jaffe, what about him? <laughs> And our spiritual wake. <laughs> and now we can continue our spiritual wake. <laughs> it's really blind, you know, words like Tom and I would, Tom and I would howl for hours over just a line, you know. It's very funny. Well, you should definitely still be proud of Nothing Lasts Forever. It is terrific. Well, I am my small contribution, but it's a really it's a Schiller masterpiece, and um, um, he's a he's a, a maestro and an auteur. And he seems like a really nice guy too. And he's a really nice guy. Always was big heart. Must have been nice to have him as a, a quote unquote boss for all those years. Yeah, yeah, he was a great boss. Even though Hunter tried to get me fired when he wanted me to to go live with him. He kept harassing Tom <laughs> late at night. Tom was like, you have to tell Hunter to stop calling me. <laughs> <laughs> Hunter was trying to get me fired, you know. <laughs> Tom actually came out and stayed with us, too, and stuff. So, you know, they were friends. But, you know, they were, they were friends once, you know. But we did, I did uh, Java Junkie, and then I left, you know. And then I came back and did some of, um, you know, and then for Nothing Lasts Forever. And and then Hunter was wanted me to come home, and Belushi had died, so it was a, a tough time, which is why I left. Which I, I feel like Tom probably never forgave me for that a little bit. And it was very, when I look back on it, I think, what was I thinking? I was kind of unprofessional on some level, but I think we were all so devastated, you know, or oh, I was, you know. And um, it was hard. It was hard, especially in the beginning, um, to just focus and. It just was all very strange. I mean, it was great to have something to do, but I was very um, kind of undone by it. So I think at one point I just I had to leave and go home, and then and then I came back. But I don't really remember. You know, I'm sure Tom was mad, but sorry, Tom. Please forgive me. How long was it after uh, John Belushi died that just the production of? Yeah, that's what weeks. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been so tough for everybody. I mean, Dan Aykroyd. I mean, so many people. You know, oh yeah. Friends no, did. yeah. No, we were we were just we were all a mess, really. So even like working on a thing, it was like. And in fact, I remember one of the first product quote unquote production meetings, and we were all. It was right. It was right after. You know, it was one of the first things we started. The we were starting Tom's movie, and we were sitting around a table. Where were we? Maybe Broadway video. I don't remember. And Lauren was in the room. And then I think Lauren said something about, he quoted some cartoon that he had seen about John getting to heaven or something. I don't remember what the cartoon was. But for some reason this, you know, I was kind of, I don't know, it upset me, you know. And I remember like leaving the room and, you know, crying and being mad, you know. know? So there was a lot of emotion 
in the beginning. And, you know, so we, we made that movie with a lot of, like, there was a lot of upset in our, in our crowd, you know, um, going on during it. Man, oh, man. I kind of wanted to end on a happy note, but... Oh, yeah, right. Let's get happy. <laughs> well, we are happy, aren't we? We're happy. <sighs> well, you know what? Like I said, you know, he, he, the great thing, nothing lasts forever, okay? Even your unhappiness and even your happiness, but nothing lasts forever does last forever, the movie, I mean. And that's what's so fantastic. You asked me how I felt when I saw it. I thought, wow. You know, there it is. There it is. It's going to stay there. People are going to see it. And, you know, Michael Streeter, what a doll. Like, he kind of resurrected this. He he became obsessed with this movie. This kid who saw it in Holland and, like, you know, weirdly, I don't know why he saw it there since it wasn't released anywhere. That was bizarre. But, you know what I mean? It's affected people. It, people will continue to see it. And that lasts forever, you know? And so we could be happy about that, I think. Finally, an interview with Nothing Lasts Forever's director, Tom Schiller. You were right there at the start of Saturday Night Live. What was that like? What was that scene like at the time? Um, I, it was a swirl of new things in New York because I... I lived in Los Angeles, so I, moved, I had moved to New York in that summer, and it was like 2,000 degrees, and I was just with Lorne. It was he and I in some small office at 30 Rockefeller Plaza and a secretary. So I was just sitting on a couch there and making calls and stuff as the whole thing started coming together, and people came in like Michael O'Donoghue was hired, and and Beats and Alan Zweibel and then Chevy Chase came in. It sort of started growing like an amoeba. And we walked down to this empty studio, 8H, which was completely empty, that Toscanini had built. I thought it was so cool. And that was going to be where it was and everything. So it was all scary, kind of, because first of all, it was the 70s in New York, and you thought you were going to get killed. And I was so scared that I rode in the front seat with the cab drivers <laughs> so to feel safer. <laughs> so you weren't some sort of, uh, you know, you weren't a country rube. You grew up in a populated area, right? Yeah, L.A., well, Westwood. But everyone said, don't go to New York, man. You're going to get knifed. And, and if you go in the park, they're going to kill you and rob you and everything. And you could feel it was palpably scary. It was scary on the streets, you know what I mean? So, um, yes, it was in the middle of all of that really sweaty, hot, you know, weather. And people who you didn't quite know, and none of us really quite knew what we were about to do. But we were all plunging in, you know, the best we could. What kind of role did you play when you when the show actually started up? Well, at first I was kind of like made phone calls for Lorne. But he had he had talked me into uh, that I would become a writer or something, and I kept asking him, you know, when are you going to make me a writer? I actually had a desk inside Lauren's office, which is weird because no one else did after that. But then he finally did make me a writer, <clears throat> and it was a, I joined the 
crowd of nine or ten other writers. So I was a beginning writer, and I didn't know at all how to write situation comedy, you know, sketch comedy. So I think the, I think the first thing I wrote was a, a a parody commercial about you couldn't open these pills because they had a childhood sa- child-proof safety cap called Try Openin'. So I was very excited that I wrote something like that. And you had been making films pretty much since you were a kid. When did the filmmaking kind of enter into the scene as far as Saturday Night Live? I think it was after Albert Brooks was in the first year, and then Gary Weiss was in the second and third, or second and third. After Gary left, I I inherited the position and started doing my first stuff there. Now, was that an enviable position, or...? Oh, God, yes. Are you kidding? It was like, first of all, I love making short films, and I had been doing that up until then, plus documentaries, too, but the short film format, like, is my favorite thing, and it's, it was enviable because I had a lot of freedom, and I could just sh- go out and shoot, and I have the resources of NBC behind me, you know, to edit and to shoot and to get a crew my first one was called The Acid Generation, Where Are They Now?, which is just elderly people remembering the 60s, which is about now. This is true, <laughs> like it came true. And you also kind of, uh, so you use people that you would find on the streets, but you also use some of the cast members from the Not Ready for Primetime players, right? Yes, that's right. Um I loved doing both. I love finding people on the street and, and making pseudo professions. Like some guy looked like a director, so I pretended he was a famous unknown director. And yes, then I used John Belushi for my first one, where he's you know dances in the graveyard as the sole surviving member of the cast. And that was great because they were just on the rise and fr- freshly famous and fun to work with and it was it was great i loved la vida gilda yeah la dolce gilda la dolce gilda thank you he um we did that at a at a party after the show downtown because they always had these parties you know and i put the dialogue on index cards and just handed it out to various people who were at the party and they, they said them and then a year or two later i was in rome and I <clears throat> took a pilgrimage to my great film hero, Fellini, at Cinecitta Studio. And I went to the front of the studio and said, look, I'm a, I'm a friend of Henry Miller and Paul Mazursky. I'd like to go in and see Fellini. I did know those guys. And finally, they let me in. And I got to meet him, Fellini, and watch him shoot something. And... I said, I made this homage to you, La Dolce Gilda. And he says, we must arrange a screening. <laughs> so I went back and showed him this La Dolce Gilda, and he said it was sweet. And my heart, I was just walking on air. He was my number one director hero. And for him to like my stuff was just great. Who would you say some of your, apart from Fellini, who were some of your other influences when you were directing? Oh, I don't know. Um Every obscure late-night black-and-white television, TV, movie, I don't even know the names of the directors, those American obscure ones that just made kind of B-minus movies, I like them. 
I liked all of the French. Fellini, uh, Fellini is number one, but uh, Francois Truffaut, he, he is also in my pantheon. After I saw the 400 Blows, I was quite convinced I wanted to be a director. Preston Sturges, of course, I love his that screwball stuff. Um, and I like obscure stock footage where you don't know who the cameraman is, but I always wanted to do a film about who these camera guys were that went out and shot pictures of skylines or boats or people and stuff. I could watch stock footage for hours, and I did. For Nothing Lasts Forever, I went to the Movie Tone newsreel office, which was there since the 20s, and you would sit at these tables with movieolas and watch old stock footage, and God, I could spend all day doing that. That must have been amazing to see those kind of glimpses of the past like that. Yeah, you're like one thin strip away from where that was in 1930 or whatever it was. Now, Nothing Lasts Forever, how did that one come about? Well, ever since I was 12 and I saw the 400 Blows, I wanted to be a film director. So I would look at pictures in the Cahiers du Cinema, <laughs> or Film Culture, rather, magazine, and see how they were dressed. This is how I prepared for the role. And I also kept extensive journals about ideas for films. And I had very thick amount of... So I always was ready to be one at any moment. So when when they asked me, at the end of the first five years of Saturday Night Live, we were all sort of hot commodities, the writers, you know? And I think they made a deal with Lauren, MGM, to produce five films or something. So five mm-hmm. people were writing scripts. There was... Don Novello, whose father Guido Sarducci, if you remember, oh, he yeah. was writing. He was writing a script. Franken and Davis was write, were writing a script, but it had too expensive because it had a city populated by Pacers, GMC Pacers at the front. <laughs> it didn't have. They didn't have CGI at that time. And then uh, there was something, and Lorne was writing something with his friend John Head called. Pride and Prejudice, based on the classic book. And I was just writing a weird... Lawrence would just go and write a Tom Schiller movie. So I would sit in cafes with a legal pad and just sort of write down things based on ideas that I had been amassing all that time. Wow. And then MGM said, okay, for mine. I, I couldn't believe it, because mine was the weirdest and I think maybe they thought it was the cheapest one to produce and get out of the contract. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I was in heaven. Suddenly, suddenly, at the age of 33, I became a director, or I you know, was a, allowed to direct my first film, which was my highest wish. And so you were dressed for the part. You, you knew how a director <laughs> dresses. Yeah. I had no formal training which may have been one of the reasons why it was never released. But, but uh, no, I didn't go to film school or anything. But we, I grew up across the street from UCLA, and I would ride my bike when I was about 10 or 11 over to the film school and snoop around. And I'd go in the dumpsters and pick out pieces of film, roll them onto a spool and project them with the family 16-millimeter projector with, and put a soundtrack from a record. I always did that. I love to. Oh, wow. 
How was it going from doing, I mean, because you've done, at that point, you've done dozens of shorts. How is it to go from being a short writer-director to your first feature? It must have been pretty daunting. Yes, it was bewildering. I did not know how to do it. <laughs> I didn't, never wrote, read those books that said how to write a feature in 22 weeks or something like that. I never knew about the arc and development of the main character and the sec act three and act four and all that kind of stuff. I just kind of made it up, you know, much in the same way that grandma Moses picked up the paintbrush when she was like 95 and had no formal training. Of course I had done a little formal training. When I met with some of the one guy at MGM, he said, you can be quite a compelling short filmmaker, but can you make a feature film? And I thought, whoa, no, no. It's so scary. <laughs> but I plunged ahead and did it. Well, so much of the film, that whole idea of Adam Beckett wanting to be the artist, it felt a lot like, um, well, it felt like a Fellini film. It felt kind of like eight and a half, like, you know, somebody who wants to make the art, but is just kind of, you know, cut off at, at all the times. But um, how close was Adam to Tom Schiller? Well, I would say 120%. And thank you for mentioning eight and a half. My God, that's the number one film. I just saw they're, re they're restoring it. And I can't wait to see it on the big screen. But yes, that was that was autobiographical, sure. Did you live with your uh, aunt and uncle? No, not all of it was. <laughs> <laughs> no. I was just so amazed at the cast. I mean, to get Imogene Coca and Eddie Fisher and Sam Jaffe, I mean, what was that process like working with these folks? I just wanted to work with all the classic people I, I loved in Hollywood and on TV. And so, for example, like when I was very little, because my father wrote television comedy, when I was about six, I was awakened on a school night if a sketch was going well on your show of shows with Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca. So I was the only school kid that from school that got awakened at night if a sketch was running well. And you know what I mean? So I always loved her, Imogene Coca. I always she was wonderful, terrific. And Sam Jaffe, I like I just loved him in Lost Horizon. And he's supposed to play somebody who's 125 billion years old in that movie. And this, and for mine, I wanted. He represented that kind of old wisdom kind of guy. He was. I just wrote him a letter, and he he responded and said, "Sure, he'd do it." He was a sweetheart. And uh, who else? Uh, of course, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd were my pals, and so they said right yes right away. However, I didn't use them very very much in the film, which may have disappointed MGM who may have thought they were getting more of like an animal house or something like that. But anyway, who else did I miss? It was just uh, uh, Mort Saul. He was, huh? He, he, um, my dad used to take me around to different friends of his, and one of his was Mort Saul. And I would go over while they would talk. I would sit and on the couch and read Mad Magazine and Humbug, which Mort Saul always had a, hundred, a lot of those copies around so i loved him 
Um, and Mad Magazine, by the way, is another high influence to me. I, the old one, it was really good. And uh, who else? Who else am I forgetting? Abby Fisher. Oh, yeah. Well, we were all pals with Carrie Fisher around the Saturday night. And, and I met him on several occasions. And I don't know. I think he hadn't been in anything for about 20 years. But I asked him if he wouldn't mind being in it as a singer on a bus to the moon. And he did it. And I, 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 he sang Oh My Papa, which is, I guess, one of his signature tunes, right? And I put it into cha-cha time in order to spice it up a little because they were old, old people on this bus. <laughs> and afterwards, he said he thought it was disrespectful for the, the song, <laughs> which I, I found fascinating. But uh, he did it, and it was fun. And there's a lot of other people in there like, uh, uh, you know, the, the Letterman guy from the, the bus driver. What's his name? Calvert De Calvert DeForest. I loved him in an open, open, in an open audition. This guy came by and he shook my hand, and it was rather moist. It was like a frog, and uh, I just looked at him. I, I knew I had to have him for the movie. I didn't realize at that time he was on Letterman, playing a bus comp driver or something, or head of a bus company, which was a, a coincidence because he was one of the passengers on my bus to the moon, and. I don't know if there's uh, other people, but I guess I'm forgetting. Well, seeing Lawrence Tierney, like when he shows up, I was like, was that Lawrence Tierney? There's no way in hell that was. This was done without my knowledge. I, whoever was casting it at the time must have contacted him because I don't really know who he was. <laughs> and he's, he, but he's a special, now that I do know, and Reservoir Dogs and all that kind of stuff, I'm so happy he did it. He just showed up and had a little cameo. That was a treat. I was going to say, seeing Eric Avari as Toulouse-Lautrec was uh, pretty great, too. <laughs> that was always gets a laugh. And that's when you could still smoke inside a, a building. And also, Anita Ellis, people may not know who she is, but who sang as Aunt Anita. She was the voice for many Hollywood uh What's her name? And put the blame on Mame. What's so? Oh, uh, Gilda. Yes, Gilda. She had the most beautiful voice, uh, Anita Ellis, and always dubbed the voices of these stars. And uh, she had stage fright. But for my film, since I knew her growing up, I, she said she'd do it. So this was old friends and new kind of coming together for this. That's right. And I love the use of the stock footage. I especially love seeing the stuff from um, Carnegie Hall, Elmer's film, in there at the beginning. Oh, you know that film? Oh, yeah. Nobody knows that film. But that's, that's really one of those early films where, like, if you, if you keep practicing, you can make it to Carnegie Hall. And, <laughs> you know, the underprivileged people who don't finally make it to Carnegie Hall, there was some gorgeous stuff in that picture. You know, the way it was shot. And I did. I used a lot of footage from that. Before I, I forget, I loved seeing King Donovan show up as well. Oh, yes, because uh, when Imogene Coca came on, she said there's one stipulation, and that is my husband, King Donovan, has to be there, too. And that was okay with me. Oh, yeah, I bet. Yeah, wasn't he in that science fiction movie uh, with those pods? Oh, no, yeah, that was he was in... Uh... 
No, I thought he was an invasion of the body snatchers, wasn't he? As the uh, the guy who gives him a drink at the yeah, uh, what was his name? Teddy. I can't remember. Uh, yeah. It's been too long. But yeah, I'm pretty sure he was in that. Yeah, I, I love the the shifts in the film. That whole section, especially where he's trying to find himself as an artist, and all of those different events that he goes to. Just that whole section that montage is just amazing to me thank you yeah i thought it would be funny to show a montage of someone trying to be an artist rather than trying to do something else so that was fun yeah that was a mar- remarkable what was the art scene like in new york at that time i don't know uh like it was kind of maybe that was when andy warhol i can't remember but there were happenings and showings and a lot of you know fake stuff i guess it's always been a little pretentious to me, as I may be sounding at the moment, but <laughs> I I always really like to make fun of the art scene. <laughs> I love the guy counting to a million on the treadmill. He was amazing. Yeah, that was good. So what was the shoot like? Was I mean, this is your first shoot. You've got friends of yours there. You've got old friends from the past. You've got new actors that you're not that familiar with. How do you manage to be your, you know, do your directing thing for the first time with this feature-length film? Well, first of all, I didn't sleep, like, for two weeks before the first shooting date. I mean, I was so nervous, okay? So, but the first day it starts, we're in the train, some train cabinet, and they're shaking the train, and Adam has to get up or something. Anyway, right after I said action and it started to move and the train moved, it was like a physical feeling through my body that sort of got relieved and I, all the tension left me and suddenly I was having the most fun in my whole life that, to direct. I mean, to be a director of a feature film that you wrote and that's funded and, and everything with people you know and are great actors, it, it's just the greatest thing in your whole life. And so it went pretty smoothly. It went, I think it was about six weeks or seven weeks and I was, every day was just exciting, you know? I, I loved it. I didn't know what I was doing, but I loved it. You shot in color and then just desaturated to the black and white, or was that black and white footage? Actually, this was the... Um, I wanted to make the whole film in black and white, yes, at first. But then the then president of, Uni- of MGM, Freddie Fields, who I'm not sure... I. I don't know, he said, you better shoot it in color because then you can change it to black and white. And that was a wise decision because then I could choose the points where I wanted it to go into color and to go black and white. So I'm glad that happened. So it uh, it is color, basically. It's amazing. It matches, the black and whites match really well with the um, uh, footage that you use from other films. So it's very seamless as far as the transitions go. Thank you. Thank you. I liked it. I can't believe it myself. I just picked out stock footage and put it together. I don't think that there was anything special done, but I, I people tell me that, and it's a compliment. I remember, I think it was around the same time that they were doing um, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, and I remember all the talk about them having to match up the footage that Reiner was shooting with the footage that they were using from the previous films, and there is a distinct jump or shift in quality when you're going from one to another 
But with yours, it felt very, very integrated. It just felt like it was all of a piece, which was great. Thank you. I think I, I don't care so much. I just put it in, and, and it works better. I don't want to do some horrible, extensive balancing and you know what I mean, lab work or something like that. I think the fact that it's all so different makes it all work together somehow. I don't know. But I was delighted, and I whenever when I see it on the big screen, I still like it. I love it. And the color footage is—it's so nice and soft, and it's almost—it's uh, like pastels versus you know, like the harsh Technicolor kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I even wonder how I achieved that. <laughs> but Fred Schuler, who is an excellent cinematographer, and had had done some Woody Allen movies and stuff like that, and he. I showed him the film called Intermezzo with uh, Trevor, I forget who, Ingrid Bergman. That was for the black and white framing look of the film. And then I don't know what I showed him for Technicolor, but it it just came out great. I don't know why. I think it was in the color of the sets. You know what I mean? That's the secret of that. Not so much in, in... how you treat it afterwards it's how if you paint the set the right color it'll photograph that color and it comes out great so when the movie's over what happens next what's the is there a big premiere or what goes on with the film we showed it to several people and some some didn't respond too hot in fact i showed it once to they had a screening for louis mall who i was like in in awe of and after he saw it, he told me, he said, cut it to the bone, <laughs> which I guess in retrospect means it's too long. You know what I mean? And in a way, I, he was sort of right. I wish I could take a few minutes out here and there. But it goes out to a testing place in Seattle and in, I think also in Santa, San Diego at some mall cinema and it was, I think, absolutely the wrong kind of audience for it, you know? It's really more of a midnight weird movie. So they put in bad lobby cards on it, and it never, it never got released, except it went straight to late-night Dutch television. Holland, France, Spain, Greece, Great Britain, and it was shown late at night on those in those countries, which I actually liked because that's my, the sensibility of who I would want to see, a, a Dutch insomniacs, film buffs. <laughs> so uh, it actually got the audience that I had hoped that it would get. And after that, it's shown around the States in various festivals. Like it went to uh, the Walter Reed Theater at, um, you know, what's it called? Uh, Lincoln Center. Bill Murray was there to present at BAM Cinematheque, uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music. Uh, it went to Germany to some weird film festival called Sitchies. It went to uh, L.A. to Cine Family, which was a great audience. It was, ne- and finally, after 30 years or something like that, it's on TCM at late night. What, what's that called? The cult movie? Oh, the uh, TCM Underground. Yeah, TCM Underground. So in reality, as disappointed as I was at the beginning that it wasn't released, it finally got the audience that I could always hope for. It's kind of 
underground neat people who cool who like movies and would get the kind of obscure references that I was using and I really had a cult following it doesn't have to be big but I'm honored is that that's what happened it must have in some way though other than reaching your target audience of insomniac dutch it must have crushed you though to not be able to share your work with the world i mean especially you know you're the the only guy whose script gets greenlit out of this whole Saturday Night Live crew. I mean, obviously they would go on to do other things, and they had you know Blues Brothers and things at this time. But you know this very select group of writers. Yours the yours is the one that's greenlit, and then what MGM just pulls the plug because of a bad screening. I think, or they didn't think it would make any money, or it was bad. But <clears throat> no, I. Of course it hurt at first, but I overcame it. Because especially now the way I say, as I say, the way it's been released and it's still living after all these years. And some guy in the New Yorker blog said, it's a masterpiece. Oh, and they wanted it for Cam, and the guy said it was a masterpiece a long time ago. So I'd gotten who I want to see it. Also, I'm not sure, like, if it was released in the mainstream thing, uh, I don't know if I could sustain that kind of uh, exposure anymore. I can just rest quietly that I made one neat cult film, and that's all right, kind of, sort of. You know what I mean? Right. I wish I could. I wish I could do something to the president of MGM. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't care. It's in the film, the Swedish architect on a train says to Adam Beckett, he says, you will get everything you want in your life, only you won't get it in the way you expect. And this really happened to me on a train. Some guy said it to me, a stranger. And that happened to me as with this film. It's amazing. I'm, you know, it's great. Now, when the film doesn't come out, what do you do afterwards? You know, the, are you still working at Saturday Night Live, or had there, had there been that regime change, or what was happening with that? I think after all of that stuff, we were all on hiatus, or we all left the show because Lauren did. And I went back to L.A., which was kind of disappointing because I didn't like it there in the first place. But when Lauren started the show up again five years later, sick. He invited me back, and I chomped at the bit and came back and made some more short films, you know what I mean? Including like that one with Phil Hartman, where he dances, and uh, so it was good. I, sh I shouldn't have stayed there six more years, I'm not sure about that, but after that, I needed a way to make some money, so I started making commercials, because Gary Weiss, who had pre was before me on the show. He did that successfully, and a couple other of my friends. And it seemed like a way I could still use my craft and make some dough. And it turned out to be okay. I did that for 15 years and had a lot of fun. You know, I think people might poo-poo commercials or something, but you're still exercising, directing, casting, moving the camera, telling a story. It, it's just being there's a a person on the set who's t t making interesting suggestions which aren't always interesting although the people on the set the the client m might say something that's really so weird that it actually works 
and I, I did I enjoyed collaborating with those people and everyone on the crew. So it satisfied my desire to make movies and maybe not just features. Would I have seen any of your commercials? You've seen them? I said, would I would I, I have seen oh, them? It's such a, a barrel shot. It's like asking you to, what did you write? What did, you know, would I know your stuff? It's like they range weird ones from like the, the Budweiser Re- Real Men of Genius. Do you remember those? Oh, God. Yeah. I, did, I didn't invent that, but I, I did several of those, like Mr. Toupee Wearers and Mr. Nudist Colony Activities <laughs> Coordinator. And I, I did the one where a guy put stuff in the, in the Yellowstone Parks in the, what's it called, the geyser? Oh, Old Faithful? You know, yeah, he puts in the geyser, that's what makes it erupt so high. And they got angry at us because you're not supposed to put anything in the geysers. Uh, I did that. I did all kinds of, of some. But I don't know. There's so much fun to do because you the last 10 days and then you're off. On to the next one, right? Mm-hmm. What are you doing these days? Oh, I'm thinking of uh, working on a, a documentary. Somebody is interested about me. And oh, awesome. Yeah. And uh, I am living in the north of Connecticut. I never thought I would live in the country in my whole life, but I'm finding it rather wonderful with trees and stuff. So that's a fresh new thing. And I I really wanted to be an architect first, so I'm kind of taking care of the house here as well. But I don't miss living in cities right now. It's, It's okay. When Michael Streeter comes to you with an idea of writing a book about you, about your work, what was your feeling on that? I said, absolutely, of course, yes, because he's from Holland, and he was just a kid who watched my movie on late-night Dutch television. And he, his sensibility, the European film sensibility, is perfect for that. And I said, I knew he'd get it. And so I said, sure, right away, absolutely. That's great. Well, it's a terrific book, and it's such a compelling read. And your work is just everything that I've seen. I've really enjoyed. Thank you. Well, thank you. And yeah, so what kind of reactions did you get at the last screening of Nothing Lasts Forever? Well, there's different kinds of screenings. There's like the film buffs kinds of screenings, which are very interesting, you know, and that that's... Uh, always nice because they ask obscure questions which I love to answer you know then they're the kind I go to with Bill Murray and of course everyone wants to talk to him <laughs> so that's okay too because he's a neat guy uh, and uh, so he he's a, and he gives the film a, a plug now and then which is very kind of him and then there are buffs of, of late night movies who go I think they like to see Zach, Zach Galligan, who later became a cult star in Gremlins, which which is funny to me, because this film that I made was before Gremlins, and I think Joe Dante, Dante saw my film and wanted to hire him based on that, I think, I don't know. But anyway, Zach is great, and he's still interesting and funny the way his take of the film was good when they answer questions. But... The funny thing is, is that they have like, since it never quite was finished properly, there's about five or six versions of the film. And 
you, I always go because I never know which one they're going to show. There's some with a lot more extra stuff in it. There's some with this horrible, they take out this art test that shows a little nudity, which is very innocent. They just chop it out, which is, that, that hurts. But it's always interesting for me to see which, which thing they're going to show. Yeah, even reading Streeter's book, he's talking about different scenes. He's like, in the scene that was cut out, and I was like, no, I just saw that on TCM, so wasn't sure which version of that I was seeing either. Yeah. It's interesting that such an obscure movie would have so many different cuts of it. Yes, I find that too. And then I, I'm not one of these people who like tries to get involved and go there and cut it. Like, I don't know, like Martin Scorsese might probably do that, you know? But I like to see what chance yields up to the next print. I really <laughs> do. I, I like to see that. And generally speaking, you can't wreck this film, I don't think, even if you make certain cuts. So it doesn't bother me that much. Although I, w- I wish they would make a Criterion thing on it, plus all my short films. That would be excellent if they did, yeah. Yeah, I had heard over the years different stories like, oh, this movie wasn't released because the stock footage wasn't cleared or this movie wasn't released because the music rights are in jeopardy or, you know, in contention. But it's even more sad when that isn't the case. Yes. It's quite an enigma. I, I don't, my, I myself don't know why it was really never released, except I'm just guessing that it wouldn't be commercial. Uh, but it's had a lot more attention lately, which is heartening being on TCM, number one, and up leading up to that, there was a whole bunch of stuff on the Internet from reviewers and people read, you know, writing about it and stuff. That was, that was heartening. So you never know what's going to happen. Well, hey, thank you so much for talking to me today. This was wonderful. It's a pleasure. And if you need anything else or other, other questions, don't hesitate to get in touch. Thanks to our guests for talking to us about Nothing Lasts Forever and so much more. You can find links to where you can find out more about our guests over at our website, projection-booth.com. So um, why should we care about this little film, guys? Well, it's an interesting film. And, uh, and part of what makes it interesting isn't just the content, but the story behind it, how it was made and then shelved and uh, you know, hard to see for you know, how many decades, 30 years? You couldn't see this film at all, and uh, and now now it's finally it's 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 like so many other films that I've loved that were made and they may have come out or they barely came out, but either way, decades go by and you can't see them at all, and then finally you're able to start seeing them again. And I don't know, I'm not sure where I'm going with that. No, I totally agree. I mean, there are too many of these movies that are just kind of lost in time. I mean. Nothing lasts forever. Like I said up front, it played in Seattle for, I think, like two weeks, something like that. And then, um, you know, per Michael's interview, you know, it played on, um, you know, Dutch TV and stuff. Obviously, it played on British TV, which was the version that that we watched. And then it played on American TV with the, the one airing so far on the Turner Classic Movies channel. And that's about it. I mean, it was available in the gray market. Um, you know, I used to sell it at superhappyfun.com. So it was out there, and people could get it that way. I don't remember 
usually when I would sell stuff, I try not to have it so that other people were selling it at the same time. That is, I didn't want to undercut somebody else's business, especially if they had a better print of it. So, I, But I don't think, like, just for the hell of it or uh, Video Search Miami. Maybe Video Search Miami probably had a copy, but their copy was probably shit. So, yeah, it it's, was out there. I, definitely the YouTube video broke it through kind of and and helped people see it a lot more but unfortunately that got taken down so it's still not necessarily out there and it it, which doesn't make any sense to me because it's like you're not going to make any money off of this film right now i mean maybe somebody could turn a couple buck profit but i mean even if it just kind of got out on um warner's burn on demand thing that would be fine but kind of to tom schiller's point it'd be great if there was a nice criterion release of this thing with all of his short films from saturday night live i mean the guy has done a ton of work and it'd be great to have all of that stuff kind of put together into one collection of you know tom schiller vision kind of thing but as for schiller's short films from saturday night live are those on the series sets that came out a couple of years ago because I know they went back and they did like the first season through, I don't know, maybe season five or six of Saturday Night Live because they, I know that they had wanted to do that for a long time, but they were having like rights issues with the music and they finally were able to clear all that stuff. So I'm wondering if they're on there as well individually within the episodes. As far as I know, yes. I know that the uh, John Belushi film, Don't Look Back in Anger, that was on the John Belushi VHS and maybe the DVD release, like the best of kind of thing. I want to say yes, that most of his stuff that aired at the time is available on those discs, but then there was also a bunch of stuff that didn't make it to air. So it would be great to kind of see those. I mean, especially the ones that had the cast members from SNL kind of integrated into into them, but even the ones that didn't, because to me, some of those are even more fascinating. Like there was one that he did about a um, director uh, who was telling this whole story of his life. And this kind of feels very much like uh, nothing lasts forever because it's this guy, non-actor talking about all these films that he made and it's integrated with stock footage or, or, you know, purchase footage from uh, other films. So it's like making him look like he's the director of these movies and going through his whole career. And it makes him sound like he had this terrific career and uh, you know, something like that, if it's not available on DVD, definitely should be because it's like, you know, this is a great skit more than anything else. Well, I think the names alone should be able to push this thing. I mean, you would like think. I've talked about. I mean, I've talked about it over and over again with Robert Downey's Pound, the fact that Robert Downey Jr.'s in it, and that should be a sales point for whoever decides to, re, you know, put it back out. Even though he's only in it for like a minute. I mean, this you have you know longer performances by Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray and Zach Galligan. I mean, those three right there. I mean should be enough to sell it and especially pushing it out as at least on the web, they focused on Murray more than anybody because, you know, there is kind of a cult of Bill Murray out there. Like people really like him. And I think that that, you know, if I was MGM or whoever has this in their vault, it would be kind of a no brainer just to kind of pull it out and clean it up a little bit and throw it back out of the market. Or at least just sell it back to Schiller and let him put it out. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Go over to, you know, it's like you go over to Tom Schiller's website today. It'd be nice if he just had little buy now kind of thing, but... But then again, would it be a um, would it be a Lorne Michael issue because it is Broadway film, you know, video? So I mean, even if it was distributed by MGM, you know, do they own it or is this a Lorne Michaels sitting on it kind of thing? Well, right now I think it's Warner Brothers owns it because Warner Brothers bought out a lot of the catalog when MGM went bankrupt. So I think Warner Brothers has it, and really. You know, even with all of the discussions that we've had with people, it doesn't sound like there's a real definite answer as to why it's not out there. I mean, the reason why it can show on TV is because the TV rights are absolutely secure. Skiz, just FYI, the uh, theatrical rights for this are still out in the open, so people can go out and book screenings of this, which has happened over the last few years. There's been a BAM uh, Cinematheque screening. There's been other screenings around. So it's like... Every other format except for home video seems to be available right now. And apparently there's a pretty good print of it that goes around. And this is one of those movies where I would love to see this thing on the big screen. Which is funny because this movie came out at right around the boom of video. So you think that somebody would have understood what the legal rights were around home video on, a, on this type of film. Right. But yeah, it just kind of got cock-blocked back in the day and... Still is. Well, at least you can put it on your DVR. Isn't that right, Mike, coming up? Yeah, you can put it on the DVR. I mean, I still have the last screening uh, saved on my DVR, um, which is taking up room that uh, America's Next Top Model should be taking up. But, uh, yeah, it's playing again May 30th, 2015. So if you're listening to this episode before May 30th, set up your DVR, grab a copy of it off the air, and enjoy. So we teased a little bit earlier about the whole idea of the music, you know, because you've been looking for the soundtrack album and it doesn't exist necessarily, but there is one track that is kind of out there. The whole idea of the lunar shopping song, uh, that still exists. Our friend Robert Hubbard, uh, that uh, Skiz and I know from Kansas City, he tipped me off to this one, but apparently Rob, you picked up on it right away because you're a big fan of Dogma. Yeah, I was sitting there and I'm watching this and I'm go. This sounds really familiar. I'm like, where have I heard this? We're gonna shop. We're gonna shop. We're going shopping on the moon by the USA. We're gonna shop. We're gonna shop. We almost hit something. Can anyone guess what that was? Yes, I know. Lunar two, lunar two. That's right. Soviet probed the crash land here in 1959. Looked like they could use American know-how. And then I realized that it's the theme song for the movie's uh, restaurant that is in Dogma. And then also in uh, several other Kevin Smith films, including Jay and Silent Bob and uh, the second Clerks film, which takes place in the movie's uh, fast food restaurant.
then I went and looked it up, and I realized that it was Howard Shore that did the score for obviously both films. So uh, Howard score, uh, Howard Shore didn't uh, get ripped off; he ripped himself off and just repurposed his own music. Because obviously, at that point, when Dogma came out, nobody had seen Nothing Lasts Forever. Even uh, fewer people had seen it than us thanks to the internet. It's like some of these composers just kind of have the same couple bits of score and they'll just reuse them. But in this case, it definitely makes sense. I mean, you do have a really nice little jaunty piece of music that nobody's hearing <laughs> in one film. So why not get it out there with uh, something definitely aimed much more at the popular culture? I, I'm sure Kevin Smith is very proud of that, that too, that, that uh, he's able to connect his films to this lost classic you know i would ask him we were actually thinking about doing an episode on dogma one of these days but then we got to talking and smith is such a recluse when it comes to you know just like nobody knows where he's at where he lives i mean nobody's seen the guy in 20 years since his last film so (laughs) it's just really you know kind of difficult he's like the jd salinger of directors well maybe it's because he lost (laughs) all that weight he's standing sideways and you can't see him anymore oh I'm not picking on anyone's weight. Okay, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. It's a big, sprawling space saga of rebellion and romance. It's a spectacle, light years ahead of its time. I am C-3PO, human-cyborg relations, and this is my counterpart, R2-D2. Hello. It's an epic of heroes. Good luck. And villains. And aliens from a thousand worlds. That is right. Modi May continues with a look at George Lucas's Star Wars. We'll be joined by Mr. Chris of Outside the Cinema and a bevy of guests. It is sure to be a nerdtacular time. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Skiz Sizzik. Skiz, last time you were on, we talked about Liquid Sky and a bit about your documentary on Fred Lane, Ice Pick to the Moon. How's that going? getting there little by little uh i went back to working full time so now finding the time to work on my own films has been tough but uh i have a bunch of it edited my goal of finishing it by august i doubt i'll meet but 
it is nice to finally, after all these years, be able to see parts of it completely put together. And I have checklists of all kinds of animation that need to be done, which I'll wait to do last in, in case any of those scenes get cut. But no, it's, it's really great. I, I shot some more. <laughs> I shot some more like two months ago in Memphis. Uh, you know, I keep thinking I'm done shooting, but, and I'll find something else I need to shoot. And I, so I got, I got a really nice interview, uh, shot at Goner records in Memphis that, uh, I quickly edited before I even made it back to Baltimore. So that scene is already done and ready to go into the film. Very nice. Has this whole, uh, living under a curfew, is that helping? Like, you know, you have to go home at night now and you can work on the film or, um, well, it hasn't even been a week. And from what I understand, it's lifted, uh, as of today so in four minutes i can leave the house Ooh. if i want to uh <laughs> go roam the streets <laughs> now the, the the curfew has not really affected me much at all except that the screening of taxi driver with thomas dolby was canceled and then the screening of the cambodian garage rock documentary in silver spring with a concert from one of the bands afterwards there's no way i would have made it home in time for the curfew if I had gone to that. So there's two screenings I missed because of the curfew. That's how I knew that there was trouble in Baltimore when Scott Unpainted Huffines posted about the screening of Taxi Driver being canceled. I'm like, what the hell's going on in Baltimore that the screening at the Charles would be canceled? Yeah. I don't know why it was canceled. Well, I mean, I, I know why it was, but I don't think it was necessary. Well, someday a real rain's going to come and wash all the scum off the streets. <laughs> well, <laughs> nope. Now, did I just see that Michigan had an earthquake? Not that I'm aware of. Yes, we did. Okay. We did? Yes. You're not even in Michigan. Why do you say that? I know this because of social media. Oh. There was, and there was a story. It was a 4.2 earthquake. It was the biggest earthquake since 1947 or something like that. Where was it? Yeah. Uh, it was centered in Hastings, which is on the west side of the state, oh, I think. Those guys. So I had friends in uh, Grand Rapids that also felt it, but... Uh, there was a theory going around that, you know, um, the, the big case on gay marriage is from Michigan at the Supreme Court. So coincidence, uh, I think not. Are you saying that har, it's har. God punishing us? I'm, I'm not saying that. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again, Skiz, for coming on. And thanks to all our guests this week. And thanks to you for listening because you've listened all the way through this far. You obviously enjoyed this week's episode. So when I go over to iTunes or wherever you get the projection booth, you can leave a review. If you're on iTunes, five stars and a couple of kind words and, and then help spread the word through your social media channels or, you know, maybe you can take a bus to the moon and, and uh, let those folks know about it up there or, you know, whatever it is that works for you because, um, you know, nothing lasts forever, but uh, this podcast will probably be around for quite a while if you keep supporting it.
No great artist ever created anything while I was living at his aunt and uncle's. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.